This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 230 of the program. Today is Friday, February 21st, and before we start talking about politics, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased their monthly pledge, and that includes Andy Bradford, Arlene Chambers, Carrie Honingman, Claire Brennan, Claudette Cohen, Danny Ramon, Donna McKenzie, Dylan Patton, Edward Marine, Elena Valentino, Gothic One, Gina O'Connor, Gunnar McKelson Keift, Lawrence McNeil, Lucas Dykes, Lookout, Mr. L, Nicholas Bergman, Peter Ackerman, Peter McLeese, Petme Raskity, Phil Lyons, Prabit Singh, Rachel Mace, Remarkable Sean, Ruben Escobar Pepin, Samantha Caldwell, Thomas Kaufman, Thomas Scott Zarnak, Voltex Sazel, and Zimmer Conkling. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support or patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. Or you can also click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos and become a member and get access to our content early that way as well. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, we'll talk about the rise of Bloomberg and his attack on Bernie Sanders supporters, as well as his failed attempt to tie Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump. That backfired absolutely uh, horrifically for him. On top of that, we'll address the Bernie bro myth once again and discuss possible pitfalls in the upcoming Nevada caucus. And we'll look at Elizabeth Warren's latest attack on Bernie Sanders supporters, Mike Bloomberg's threat to democracy, the Pod Save America podcast, a hot take on Bloomberg, and I'll give you my pre- and post-debate breakdowns of the Las Vegas debate. And finally, we closed the week by talking to 2020 congressional candidate from Washington State, Chris Armitage. And that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy it. So let's waste no time. Get right to it. Mike Bloomberg has been spending hundreds of millions of dollars to basically buy his way into third place. And once the polls really started to show that he is someone who could be in this race for quite some time, given that he has unlimited resources, well, online leftists began doing what they've been doing throughout the course of this primary, vetting Mike Bloomberg like all other candidates. And the reason why it's so important for people online to dig through the history of these candidates is because we don't have a competent mainstream media who's willing to do that. Not only are they incompetent, but they refuse to actually vet these candidates in a really meaningful way. So once we realized that Mike Bloomberg is someone that we should be taking seriously, people online decided to dig through his history and, shocker, he has a lot of skeletons in his closet. So for example, Ben Dixon released audio of Mike Bloomberg at the Aspen Institute where he basically is being explicitly racist. Now, when these types of things come up, when you have direct audio and video footage of him saying racist and sexist and transphobic things, like there's no way that you can really spin that. You can't adequately defend yourself. So all you can basically do is deflect. And that's what we saw from mainstream media. For example, someone who, who was previously on Mike Bloomberg's payroll at CNN decided to, rather than defending the merits of what Mike Bloomberg said, decided to attack Ben Dixon because he released that audio. So here's the thing. 
important context here, we don't have the full tape. So this is obviously snippets that have been released. The podcaster and the writer that released this sound is clearly a Bernie supporter. If you look at his Twitter feed, he's very anti-Bloomberg. He is promoting a hashtag, Bloomberg is a racist. We don't know how he got the sound to begin with. So lots of questions are being asked, especially on the timing of this. As you noted in your introduction, a poll yesterday shows Bloomberg rising in the polls and particularly strong support in the African-American community. He polled at 22% just behind Joe Biden at 27%. So the timing here and the mission here all calling into question. So like that's what you have to do if you're backed into a corner. You have no other way to defend yourself. That audio is absolutely incriminating. And there's more. I mean, we just saw clips of Mike Bloomberg saying that black and brown people don't know how to behave. For example, take a look. But nevertheless, there's this enormous cohort of black and Latino males aged, let's say, 16 to 25 that don't have jobs, don't have any prospects, don't know how to find jobs, don't know uh, that they, what their skill sets are, don't know how to behave in the workplace where but they let, have to work let collaboratively. Me if I, let me- so this is indefensible. There's no way to defend yourself if you are Mike Bloomberg. And on top of that, there are more claims of sexual harassment against Mike Bloomberg than there are against Donald Trump. So if I'm Mike Bloomberg, what do I do in this situation? Well, if I were a good person, I'd drop out and stay out of politics forever, but that's not the reality of the situation. So what Mike Bloomberg has to do is basically try to delegitimize the people who are going after him. Now, primarily it's Bernie supporters going after him, but really this is a concerted effort by a lot of people online who don't want an oligarch to be able to buy elections. Because, I mean, if Mike Bloomberg can do this, then are we going to see Jeff Bezos do this in 2024 and the Walton family do this in 2028? Like, it's a never-ending cycle of plutocracy. We're further devolving into an oligarchy, and we don't want that to happen. So concerned citizens are vetting Mike Bloomberg since the media refuses to do that. And he has no choice but to delegitimize people, shoot the messengers rather than the message itself, because... This is all indefensible. So if you go after the people who are going after you, that's really the only way that you could possibly deflect. And that's what Mike Bloomberg tried to do. So he released an ad attacking Bernie Sanders supporters, calling out the harassment of angry Bernie bros. And this is absolutely glorious because it really demonstrates how desperate he is. And his team, they're trying to do whatever they possibly can to distract us from his horribly racist and transphobic comments. It is vitally important for those of us who hold different views to be able to engage in a civil discourse. So listen, he's doing this because nobody is exposing Mike Bloomberg more than Bernie Sanders supporters. So every other candidate in this race currently needs to thank Bernie supporters rather than attacking them. 
because nobody else is brave enough to call out Mike Bloomberg. And look, some of those tweets, I admit, were mean-spirited, but other tweets, if you pause the video and look at each individual one, you'll see that some of them actually were calling out Mike Bloomberg's racism. So what he's essentially communicating is that it's mean, it's harassment to call out my racism. That's what we're seeing here. And it's funny because you can literally do this. You can make the same attack ad against every other candidate. And back in 2016, when Bernie Bros were supposedly at, you know, their all-time most harshest, well, it was actually Hillary Clinton supporters who were more aggressive with regard to the Democratic primary, and Bernie supporters were actually the least aggressive online. And it really doesn't matter who is and isn't the most aggressive because one example of someone being abusive online is not enough to denote general applicability. Just because someone online is mean to you who supports Bernie Sanders, that doesn't mean that that represents the entire campaign or base of support. But understand, like, all this is, is Mike Bloomberg's attempt to deflect. He doesn't want you to dig through his record, so he's trying to delegitimize the people who are actually vetting him and doing what the mainstream media refuses to do. Now, to their credit, they have been talking more about Mike Bloomberg's record, but still, not as much as they should be. Like, for someone who is spending hundreds of millions of dollars and effectively running this parallel primary where he features ads with people saying, hey, we need Mike Bloomberg, but he hides his face. I mean, he knows his record is trash. So he his only move here strategically is to attack the people who are calling him out. That's what he's doing. And on top of that, what this is also about is what these candidates like Mike Bloomberg want is for Bernie Sanders supporters to demobilize. They want Bernie Sanders supporters to shut up right? Because if they can get us to think that we're making Bernie Sanders look bad and therefore hurting his chances with our behavior, then maybe we'll be quiet when we see Mike Bloomberg saying something racist. Maybe we won't speak out if we see the mainstream media or Mike Bloomberg or anyone using pro-corporate talking points to argue against Medicare for All, a literal life-saving policy. They want us to shut up. They want us to be quiet. But that's not going to happen. And it doesn't matter if we're quiet or not, the narrative will always be that Bernie supporters are unlike every other candidate supporters. We are uniquely harsh. We harass people possibly more so than Trump. And it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. The narrative will be what candidates believe it should be if they think that can actually hurt Bernie Sanders. And what Mike Bloomberg is going to learn is that when you go after Bernie Sanders supporters directly, you are going after the most passionate, motivated, and politically savvy group of people online. Sure, maybe at times we shit post a little bit too much. I think I'm guilty of this myself. But at the end of the day, we are fighting for justice, economic justice, racial justice, social justice. We believe that we are fighting for the greater good of the country, for the world, right? Because we don't have a choice. So we're not going to stop calling out people who spread lies and misinformation and corporate propaganda. Um, and Mike Bloomberg is going to learn firsthand that you're going to want to be weary about going after Bernie Sanders supporters in such a direct way, because if you want to release an attack ad against us, we'll release an attack ad back against you. Uh, for example, this remix from John, which I found absolutely phenomenal.
What's that saying again? You are the company you keep. Yeah. So um, that's one ad, but here's another one, which gets more into the details of all these sexual harassment lawsuits against Mike Bloomberg. This one might be even more devastating. Black and Latino males aged, let's say, 16 to 25, don't know how to behave in the workplace. Sakai told her boss, Michael Bloomberg, she was pregnant. She thought he would be pleased, and he said to her, kill it. Now that was incredible. So listen, you are hoping that by attacking Bernie Sanders supporters directly, you get us to shut up. You get us to stop looking into the record of Mike Bloomberg. And maybe you silence a couple of us, right? Maybe you persuade us that we should be quiet, not call out other candidates, not criticize people in mainstream media because, you know, that's going to hurt Bernie Sanders' chances. But there are millions of us, and not just here at home, but around the globe who are anxiously watching to see that we elect Bernie Sanders because... We all want to save the planet. This is a united front, not just in the United States, but internationally, around the world. This is a global progressive movement. So you may be able to silence some people, but you're not going to be able to silence all of us. And whenever you push back against us, we're going to hit back 10 times harder because what Mike Bloomberg is going to need to realize is that, you know, Bernie supporters and leftists in general, we're not like traditional Democrats. When Democrats face criticism and scrutiny, what they tend to do is roll over and die but we always hit back. We actually fight because we actually believe in something. We stand up for ourselves because we're right and you're wrong. We're on the right side of history. You are on the wrong side of history. We're for justice. You're against justice in all forms. So Mike Bloomberg is a horrible human being and progressives are going to continue to expose his atrocious record. And we don't really even have to do that much. We don't have to dig that deep. All we have to do is show old clips of Bloomberg talking and he incriminates himself because he just is an objectively racist, bad person who thinks he can be president because he has a lot of money. And maybe that can happen. Maybe he can buy his way into the White House. But it's not going to happen without the most forceful pushback imaginable from the left. And if we didn't push back against him, then I think that we would be acting immorally. We have to stop what would be just the collapse of a democracy entirely right? It would be a full-blown oligarchy if we had a second billionaire in two election cycles in a row buy his way into the White House. We have to push back because if we don't, then we're just as bad as everyone else who's complacent and not doing anything as things go to shit in this country, as people die because they don't have health insurance, as people sleep on the streets. We have to fight back because we don't have a choice, period. Even though mainstream news pundits don't want to admit this, Everyone can see Bernie Sanders is the frontrunner. The pundits in mainstream media know it, and certainly the 2020 Democratic Party presidential contenders know it, hence why they have been attacking Bernie Sanders relentlessly 
as of late. Even though it may make us angry that they're attacking somebody who's fighting for justice, it's a good sign because it shows that we're winning and they have to attack him because they have no choice if they want to win. So we've seen Joe Biden attack Bernie and say that he has never gotten anything done or he doesn't get things done. We see Pete Buttigieg ramping up the attacks on Medicare for All. We even see innocent little Elizabeth Warren going after her friend, Bernie Sanders, after previously saying, I'm with Bernie. Well, look, things get ugly during the primary process, and the attacks are always going to be directed at the frontrunner, and this upcoming debate is probably going to be pretty brutal for Bernie Sanders because he's gaining a lot of momentum as he continues to rack up these wins. Now, somebody who also decided to go after Bernie Sanders is Mike Bloomberg, who is arguably one of the frontrunners. He hasn't won a single state yet, but he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars, and... After Super Tuesday, he can stay in the race all the way until the convention and never has to worry about running out of money. So I don't know if Mike Bloomberg is going to be a real contender, but he's a threat that we absolutely should take seriously. And like all the other Democrats, he is now directing his fire towards Bernie Sanders. But he is not just directly attacking Bernie Sanders. What he's trying to do is craft this victim narrative and suggest that, no, he's not attacking Bernie. He's just responding to the attacks of Bernie Sanders, because understand this, you don't ever really want to be perceived as an aggressive candidate, because when you attack someone, it can bring down their numbers, but simultaneously, your numbers tend to go down as well, historically at least. Um, so he doesn't want to directly attack, because he is kind of creeping into that third place status, and he doesn't want to lose that. So he's trying to position himself to attack Bernie, but not make his numbers go down as well. He doesn't want to be perceived as aggressive. So we all know he put out the, you know, attack ad against Bernie Sanders supporters. And on top of that, he released this email titled Bernie's new bro, Donald Trump. Now, before we read this, let's just pause and reflect on that headline. Bernie's new bro, Donald Trump. Mike Bloomberg is literally friends with Donald Trump. They've been friends for years. He was on The Apprentice with Donald Trump. They've been friends for years. They're old golfing buddies. So that is a really, uh, I guess we'll say, interesting line of attack. And Bernie is going to utterly dismantle this. But let's just hear him out and read this email. In response to repeated attacks by Bernie Sanders, his spokespeople and supporters, today, Mike Bloomberg 2020 responded against baseless charges espoused online in print and on TV. Quote, it's a shameful turn of events to see Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump deploy the very same attacks and tactics against Mike. But the reason is clear. At this point, the primary is Bernie's to lose and ours to win. Bernie knows this. Trump knows this. That's why they are united in the campaign against Mike, said Bloomberg 2020 campaign manager Kevin Sheiky. Now we'll get to some of these quote-unquote attacks by Bernie Sanders people and supporters, but like he's trying to say that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are attacking Mike Bloomberg in the same way. What is Donald Trump doing to attack Mike Bloomberg? He's calling him mini Mike and making fun of his height. What is Bernie Sanders team doing to attack Mike Bloomberg? They are correctly stating that he is an oligarch who's trying to buy this election, and he's also racist. So, I mean, different tactics here. Nonetheless, he's saying that they're the same, and these are 
the attacks that he takes issue with. Quote, in the past week, Bernie Sanders' national press secretary, Brianna Greyjoy, senior advisor David Sirota, and national campaign co-chair Nina Turner have referred to Mike as a racist and an oligarch. Both true. Implied Donald Trump is better than a fellow Democratic candidate for president and called Bloomberg supporters enablers. All true. So if you call him a racist, if you call him an oligarch, both accurate claims, objectively true, that's an attack. You can't point out facts against me, otherwise I will take offense to it. Now, if I'm Mike Bloomberg's team, like, it's indisputable. He is an oligarch, he's also racist. But if I'm Mike Bloomberg, rather than whining about it and crying about these attacks, I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna say, look, yeah, I'm an oligarch, but guess what? Donald Trump is also an oligarch, and I have basically unlimited money. So if you truly want to beat Donald Trump, you need an oligarch to take on Donald Trump. I will spend billions of my own money to defeat him. So hell yeah, I'm an oligarch. That's what it's going to take to defeat him. Now, that may not resonate with a lot of people, but for Democrats who are absolutely worried about electability, that could get them to come on board. But instead, he's choosing to uh, play this role as, I'm the victim and they called me an oligarch. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pathetic. So these are the specific quotes that he takes issue with. This one is from Brianna Greyjoy. If you wouldn't even condone a tweet criticizing a racist authoritarian like Bloomberg, you are a fence-sitting enabler of the worst variety and have no business holding yourself out as a Democrat, much less a progressive. This is in response to audio revealing that he is explicitly racist. And this from Nina Turner. Oligarch of the month, Michael Bloomberg. And also from Brianna Joy Gray. We have no reason to believe Bloomberg's newfound political commitments. He has demonstrated a willingness to change his stripes with the political winds. And because he's self-funded, literally accountable to no one, the danger he presents cannot be overstated. Another one from Brianna. Trump will say he has a better record on criminal justice than Bloomberg, and he may be right. Absolutely correct. Uh, this from David Sirota. I'm told Mike Bloomberg isn't an oligarch. He's just a billionaire who buys elections and is a part-time resident of a foreign tax haven. Also correct. And finally from Nina Turner. I may not have a PhD yet, but I do have the good sense of knowing what makes for oligarchy. Anyone caping for a billionaire with a media company able to buy endless ads and influence party rules halfway through it is precisely a perpetuator of the corrupt system, i.e. an oligarch. Now in response to all of these quote-unquote attacks, the email reads, these attacks are unacceptable. All Democrats should focus on the critical task of choosing a candidate that can compete against Donald Trump and win. In the face of the most consequential election of our lifetimes, it is unfortunate that we are even talking about such slanderous attacks from other Democrats. And we do have some live footage of Mike Bloomberg reacting to all of these vicious attacks. I haven't cried like that since Titanic. So look, these are factual statements. Mike Bloomberg is a racist. Mike Bloomberg is an oligarch. Pointing these out doesn't inherently make them vicious attacks. It just means that they are giving you the blunt truth about Michael Bloomberg. And if you truly want to be Donald Trump then running a racist oligarch isn't the best strategy because what you need to do to beat Trump is turn out the base. Make sure that people are excited and galvanized and ready to come out and support someone they believe in. Do you honestly believe that the Democratic Party base is going to be excited about Michael Bloomberg, a former Republican who supported George W. Bush and the Iraq War? 
who's made recently transphobic and racist comments? Who defended stop and frisk? I mean, you've got to be out of your mind to think that this is the individual who can beat Donald Trump. Yes, I get he has money and you need money to beat Donald Trump. But guess what? Hillary outspent him by, what, a two-to-one margin and still lost. So maybe money isn't everything. Maybe you need a base who believes in the candidate that they're coming out to vote for. Otherwise, they might not vote at all. But I mean, this is strategy. Mike Bloomberg, again, he needs to find some way to defend himself or at least deflect and he wants to attack Bernie Sanders, who is the front runner, but he can't do that directly, otherwise he's going to hurt his own numbers, so he has to cry victim. He has to make it seem as if he isn't attacking, he's not going on the offensive, he's just defending himself and counterpunching. Except, he's really showing how clueless he and his well-paid staff is, because look at that headline again. It says, Bernie's new bro, Donald Trump. Yeah, about that. So Bernie Sanders responded to that email, and he absolutely obliterated Mike Bloomberg, and he did this by not saying anything, by just putting this picture next to that email, <laughs> and that's all he needs to do. You are going to seriously claim that Bernie and Donald Trump are friends when you have literally been friends with Donald Trump for years, and I mean, to call these attacks by Bernie's team Trumpian, no, you're the Trumpian one, because like Donald Trump, you're self-funding your campaign, you're accountable to not a single person, you have no grassroots donors, nobody, and you're friends with Donald Trump. You're a billionaire oligarch, like Donald Trump. So it's just, it's a laughable attack, and I don't know who he thinks he can convince here. Maybe, you know, he doesn't think he can convince anyone. Maybe by going after the front runner, strategically speaking, you know, he's making it seem like he's the best positioned to take on Donald Trump because, you know, if Bernie Sanders cares about Mike Bloomberg and Bernie's team is attacking Mike Bloomberg, well, then maybe it's the case that everyone should be worried about him. Maybe even Donald Trump should be worried about him. But we just talked about this. Donald Trump claimed, I'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders because there's no support with Bloomberg there. He's just buying his way into third place. The only people who are supporting Mike Bloomberg are ignorant about the fact that propping him up and supporting him, they are basically cheering on the collapse of democracy. As we devolve into oligarchy, they're okay with it because they think that he can beat Donald Trump. Well, I mean, what are some of the biggest criticisms of Donald Trump? He is racist. He's authoritarian. He's sexist. I mean, everything that you can say about Donald Trump is also true about Mike Bloomberg. So all of the Democrats' criticisms of Trump is true of Bloomberg. So you can't possibly think that running him against Trump is a good idea. And the fact that so many Democrats are coming out to endorse Mike Bloomberg, it's just, it's embarrassing. Any Democrat who supports Mike Bloomberg should be primaried. They should be out of politics forever because they're showing that they have the capacity to be bought. And they don't care about policy. They don't care about democracy. They don't mind that our country is devolving into an oligarchy. If you want to even claim that it's democratic at all, they don't care. They're just about maintaining their own careers. And Mike's got the money. That's why they're supporting Mike. So look, this is embarrassing. I'm really glad that Bernie Sanders responded to this. Don't let this oligarch take advantage of you. Don't be dissuaded from criticizing him and calling out his racism and Islamophobia because he did surveil the Muslim community in New York. Don't be afraid to call out his sexual harassment lawsuits. This individual is a bad human being and he is narcissistic enough to think that he should be the president and lead the Democratic Party when this is supposed to be the woke party. I mean, what happened to all of that? 
It's just a joke. So Mike Bloomberg has absolutely got to be stopped. But, you know, it, he's communicating to us that it's going to be a little bit easier to stop him than, you know, we thought, even if he has all this money, because he is tone deaf. He's so out of touch with normal Americans. And um, if this is all that you've got, saying that Bernie and Trump are best friends when you're literally besties with him, not going to be so tough. We just have to make sure that we get the word out in spite of all the money that he's spending to uh, prop himself up. So I'm sure that by now most of you have noticed that as Bernie Sanders continues to surge, there's been an increase in pearl clutching as of late, not just by corporate news pundits, but by his 2020 rivals as well, because they're terrified and they realize that at this point, Bernie Sanders may be unstoppable. In fact, one Politico article describes how other Democratic candidates are privately conceding that at least when it comes to Nevada, they're basically competing for second or third place. So it's crunch time. They've got to do something. If they don't act, if they don't attack Bernie Sanders, they're done. So they're hanging on for dear life, but they realize that if they just directly attack Bernie Sanders, that's not going to land because, I mean, he's just more trusted on a lot of policy issues, immigration, healthcare. So you can't really attack him based on policy. And if you try to criticize him based on Medicare for All or something like that, he has this huge base of support who will dispel myths and misinformation. So what do they do to attack Bernie Sanders? They try to take on his biggest strength, one of his biggest assets, his supporters. So their goal, seemingly, is to attack Bernie Sanders supporters and demonize them in hopes that we'll all shut up and be quiet. Because if we self-censor and we don't defend Bernie Sanders, then that gives them a huge advantage. And look, it, I'm not saying that corporate news pundits and 2020 Democrats all met in one big, you know, smoke-filled room to discuss this strategy, but it's a narrative. And narratives tend to catch on when one person says it and others find it persuasive and they all just kind of parrot it. That's what happens. So now everyone is basically attacking Bernie Sanders supporters. Last week, after bosses from Nevada's culinary union claimed that they were swarmed by vicious Bernie bros, after they of course lied about Medicare for All and were corrected, well, all of Bernie's rivals, almost simultaneously, including Elizabeth Warren, jumped at the opportunity to attack Sanders supporters, even knowing that this could hurt them, because, you know, they may need these people down the line if they do win the nomination. But I mean, still, they attacked Bernie Sanders supporters. You had Mike Bloomberg call out Bernie bros after we uncovered countless videos of him saying disgusting, racist, and sexist things. And after Joe Biden called on Biden bros to defend him on social media, he actually decided that, you know, online attacks are actually bad. <laughs> and he told NBC News, look, if any of my supporters did that, I'd disown them. Sure, Jan. And this is my favorite story because it was just a couple of weeks ago, just at the end of January when he was saying, can I please have some Biden bros, please? And now all of a sudden he's looking around and everyone is saying, Bernie bros are bad. Now he's saying, yeah, Bernie bros are bad, but please defend me online because I'm getting eaten alive because I have no supporters. It's just, it, it's pathetic. And it just reeks of desperation. But I get it. Bernie's the frontrunner. We were prepared for this. We knew that as he solidified his status as the frontrunner, these attacks would ramp up. But it's just interesting how aggressive they're being 
at attacking Bernie Sanders supporters. And it's not just 2020 candidates, because pundits have been doing this as well. For example, reporter David Atkins clutched his pearls in response to a Nevada poll where a Bernie supporter dared to poke fun at the other candidates by calling Biden gropey and Warren a snake and Buttigieg a rat, to which he responded, can you imagine if any other candidate supporters behaved like this? Hmm, yeah, I, I can't imagine a situation where anyone is worse than Bernie supporters, especially in 2016. I mean, it was definitely the case that Bernie supporters were way more aggressive online than Hillary supporters, correct? Oh, right, that's a load of horseshit, and this is just a bullshit narrative to persuade you to be quiet because they want you to think that you calling out bullshit, dispelling misinformation, and just fact-checking people is going to hurt Bernie Sanders. But it's not. And in fact, we have to push back against the mainstream media and other 2020 Democrats because they are beholden to the same multinational corporations who are hell-bent on taking down Bernie Sanders. But I mean, I don't want to be overly unkind to David here because he's not alone. There were certainly a lot of pundits at MSNBC who agreed that Bernie Sanders supporters really are the worst. Uh, you know, certainly, look, the Bernie, the so-called Bernie bros are out there. Those of us who have said or written anything negative about Bernie Sanders have heard about heard from them, at least on occasion. Certainly the other candidates do. But I myself have members of your communications team blocked on Twitter just because of even before this campaign, going back to 2016, just the nastiness gets so bad that you that it's, it's unbearable. And you've got Sanders supporters. And these are real humans, not bots who will sick the Sanders legion on you if you just say Bernie Sanders in a non-smiling tone of voice like you if you're not lauding him you do get attacked by Sanders supporters that's a real thing most of the black journalists I know who cover politics have experienced it especially journalists of color now when Joy Reid says that journalists of color are their main targets of Bernie bros uh, she's making that up. She's pulling that out of her ass. She doesn't have statistics. She doesn't have data. And second of all, the 2020 Bernie bro, demographically speaking and statistically speaking, is a woman of color. So this narrative that it's all white bros who are brigading women of color, that's bullshit. It was bullshit in 2016. And it's especially not true now that Bernie Sanders has created the most diverse coalition out of all the candidates he is winning among non-white voters so you can't keep parroting the lies that you said in 2016 and second of all when it comes to bernie sanders supporters i wonder joy do they really have a legitimate reason to push back against you why would they criticize someone like joy reed hmm i just can't figure it out I mean, Bernie Sanders does have a sort of physicality, you know, when he when he talks, that yes. is a shaking your finger yes. at Hillary Clinton, yes. shaking your finger, shovey, weirdy, you know, his his physicality yes. makes me think, yeah, he could have said, you know, listen, I think in this environment, a woman can't win. That doesn't seem like a crazy thing Well, first thing of all, I think, he, I think Bernie's lying. We see him, he slouches forward anyway, Joy, but here he turtles. If you look at his eye level where he normally answers questions, when he makes the denial, his whole shoulders come up like a little kid getting caught. His eye level is below his shoulders. This is trying to hide in plain sight. Listen, I've said this once, I'll say it again. This is nothing more than a narrative. They want to be able to viciously smear Bernie Sanders and spread misinformation, pro-corporate talking points about his policies, and not have anyone call them out, right? They're the media. They're the ones who have the authority. They're the ones who have a monopoly on political information. So how dare you criticize them for lying about your candidate? I mean, the thing about this is, look, liberals, they have this vision, not incorrectly, of Democrats 
And whenever they face even the most minimal amounts of scrutiny, they roll over and die. But the thing about leftists, the thing about progressives and democratic socialists and Bernie Sanders supporters is that we're not like traditional Democrats. We don't just roll over and die. We actually stand up and defend ourselves because guess what? We're the good people. You're not the good people. We're the good people. We're fighting for justice. You're fighting for corporate profits. That's what you're fighting for. So when we call you out because you lie about something like Medicare for All, we're not inherently evil for calling you out. You're the evil ones because you are the ones protecting this pro-corporate capitalist status quo that is literally killing people, and we are fighting for the policies that would save lives or change lives for the better. So go cry about it some more, you rich fucking babies. And you see, the thing about social media is that they hate it because it evens the playing field. Like back in the early 2000s, they could lie about candidates. They can spread misinformation about certain policies and they get zero pushback. But on social media, it evens the playing field. We're actually able to call them out and respond directly to their lies about Bernie Sanders. And they hate that. They like being able to viciously smear a candidate, bring on body language experts to prove that they're lying and not have any pushback. But those days are gone. The peasants are revolting because we are absolutely done with the system. No more incrementalism. No more milquetoast neoliberals. I'm sorry, but people who have been hurt and oppressed by the system are not going to remain quiet. And that's what we're seeing in real time, is rich people try to grapple with the fact that poor people actually kind of have a voice. And even if they think they can drown us out with their propaganda. We're not going away and we're not going anywhere. And they hate it so much, they're seething, they're crying about it because they can't take it. They can't take it. They don't like the fact that poor people have voices. They'd rather just rich explain and tell us to shut the fuck up and listen, but they can't do that anymore. <laughs> Those days are over. So this is why the Bernie bro myth is so pervasive because we have a voice and they don't want us to have a voice. They want to be the only ones with the voice. But again, those days are done. And if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention or you haven't been hurt or oppressed by this disgustingly capitalist, vicious system. Now, Michael Moore explained, I think, beautifully in an MSNBC uh, segment that people have a right to be outraged. It's not just Bernie supporters that are angry. Everyone is angry because we are hurting. Not so much the Bernie supporters that are angry. The country is angry. They're angry that they're having to live under the rule of Donald J. Trump. They're angry because they, they have to live from paycheck to paycheck. They're angry because they can't afford the daycare. They, can't, they don't know whether if they end up in the hospital, they're going to have to uh, lose their home as a result of it. Yeah, people are angry and, and they don't want half measures anymore. Obamacare was great for what it did, you know, got rid of pre-existing conditions. The kids get to stay mm -hmm. under their 26. Uh, but it, does, it, it did not it didn't go all the way. We have to go all the way. We can't, no more half measures on these things. Yeah, no more half measures. The half measures have not been working. We've been dealing with half measures for decades now, and we're more desperate, more demoralized than ever. So what we're saying now is enough is enough. We are drawing a line in the sand, and we're saying either you're with us or against us. We're not going to accept anything but a fundamental reshaping of this entire system. 
Now, you can cry about that. You can say that we're being mean and overly aggressive, but that's where we're at. Bernie Sanders supporters and poor people in general who have checked out of the process, they can't afford anything less but fundamental reform. These types of nibbling around the edges, these tweaks to the system, it's not going to work. We've tested that theory. We've tried it your way, and now we are demanding that we're going to do it our way. And look, maybe it's the case that individuals like Joy Reid, they just really are ignorant. Maybe they're not actually you know, angry that poor people finally have a voice through Twitter and whatnot. Because Bill Maher recently explained that he also thought that that stereotype of the Bernie bro, the white angry bro, was real, but he was educated and realized that, no, actually, that's not true. And Pramila Jayapal kind of helps shed light on this and explain that this coalition is huge. It's not just white men online. This is a diverse, working-class, rainbow coalition and we need to acknowledge that because trying to pretend as if Bernie Sanders supporters are just white bros, that is erasing the diversity that is huge in this movement. Like, this is what Democrats have been saying they want, like a diverse, multiracial, multi-ethnic, working-class coalition. And now that they've got it in one candidate, well, because it's not the candidate that they like, they're shitting on him. But Pramila Jayapal explains that this really is something that's special. Tell me about something that I've been reading about lately, that there is a myth of the Bernie bros. I, we had this image, I must admit, I did too. Doesn't look like me. No, but you know, that it was mostly these younger, incelly white men. And I, <laughs> I read the statistics and no. It, in fact, Bernie does worse with white men than anybody. And it's more women who are for him, more uh, Latinas. Well, how did we get it wrong, Twitter? Twitter. I mean, I do think Twitter is a big part of it. People look at that and think it means everything. Right. But Bernie Sanders has assembled the most diverse coalition there is. He is energizing young people. He's got tons of women of color. He's got tons of people of color more broadly. Um, but he is also playing to uh, a, a forgotten group of blue-collar workers who really believe he's going to fight for them. And that combination of this very diverse coalition of voters that have not turned out before, that frankly any other candidate would be thrilled to have this kind of coalition, he's got them, but he is also speaking to a lot of people that really feel like he will fight for them. I mean, just in 2016, we lost Michigan for the first time in 28 years. Democrats lost Michigan. We lost Wisconsin for the first time in 32 years. Mm. Guess who won 71 of 72 counties in Wisconsin? It was Bernie Sanders. So when you look at the appeal of Bernie Sanders, I think it is really unusual to have somebody who can do both things really build that broader base, okay, but, but also play to these now, uh, Trump, some of them Trump voters. Yes. And she's exactly correct. Look, rather than telling angry Bernie bros to stop yelling, maybe try listening. Because the Bernie bros, which now the average Bernie bro is a woman of color, they're hurting. And as Aaron Stiggle explains on Twitter, I hear a lot about angry Bernie bros. What I don't hear a lot about is how the most diverse working class campaign in this race has the right to be mad because many of our livelihoods depend on Bernie Sanders becoming president. That is exactly it. To a lot of people, millions of Americans, this election is literally life or death because some people don't have health insurance and they need it. 
and they are hoping that Bernie's elected and is successful in passing Medicare for All. A lot of people can't spend any money because they are overwhelmed with student debt. Like, this is a fight for our lives. So much is at stake. So for people in the mainstream media and other Democrats to just minimize this pain and suffering and just, you know, reduce it down to angry Bernie bros online, it's not just, you know, a gross oversimplification, but it's downright immoral because you are ignoring the voices of people who are crying out, who need help. And you're saying, no, 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 we're going to do it my way. We're going to tweak around the edges a little bit more. And that's the way it's going to be in perpetuity because uh, fuck you. That's why. Because we have corporate profits that need to be made. And I don't want to cut into those corporate profits because then these corporations might be mad at me for doing that and they won't donate to my campaign. Just listen to people. Listen to people. And even if you disagree, at least try to understand where Bernie's supporters are coming from. These are normal people who are hurting, who need a candidate who they believe will fight for them. That's why you see so much passion. You may think that it's anger and vitriol, but this is passion from people. And maybe at times we do get a little bit angry. I have been a little bit angry on Twitter and, you know, I've snarkily tweeted at the candidates, but understand that there's so much at stake, literally life and death for a lot of people, literally about the habitability of our planet. Like if we don't elect Bernie, I don't see any other candidate with a platform that will save the planet like let alone the country but the planet we're talking about so there is so much at stake so at least try to understand and for those of you who refuse to understand or still don't care well if you're an elitist then i have nothing left to do but offer you the wisdom of anna kasparian if you can't take the heat get out of the kitchen and just log off so i'll leave you with that damn right we're <laughs> online i'm i'm a, i'm considered a bernie bro and we're angry Get well, over it. Log well, off Twitter. Log off Twitter or grow a set of balls and move on with your life, okay? It's a campaign. And if they can't handle us emphasizing policy that makes him a superior candidate, then you're not cut out for politics. Log off. So I want to take some time to talk about the upcoming Nevada caucus. But before I do that, we have a public service announcement coming directly from the Bernie Sanders campaign. He tweeted, if you vote early, you must select three options on your ballot or your vote will not be counted. If you don't have a second or third choice candidate, select uncommitted as your second and third choices. See sample ballot here. Now, as you can see from the sample ballot, since this is a caucus, you do have the opportunity to rank your second and third choices. I believe you can select more than that. Uh, but this is actually great in practice. However, there is a danger that if you don't rank your choices, then your ballot will not be counted. So please make sure that you follow the instructions. Now back to the Iowa caucus itself. Well, the good news is that Bernie Sanders is absolutely dominating according to polls. He is sitting at 35%. And the only other candidate who reaches viability barely is Elizabeth Warren. Now, mainstream media will spin this and say, well, you know what? 65% of the field doesn't support Bernie Sanders. So actually, he's not in first place. But understand this. Bernie Sanders is poised to do well in Nevada. And if he dominates in Nevada, he can have enough momentum to win South Carolina, which is arguably Joe Biden's firewall. It's a must-win state for Joe Biden. So this is huge. But the bad news is that um, there's a lot of indications that the Nevada caucus will be 
a disaster just like the Iowa debacle. Now, we don't know for sure yet, although the preliminary rundown from volunteers is that, you know, it's not good. This headline from Politico kind of explains it. Quote, a complete disaster. Fears grow over potential Nevada caucus malfunction. Volunteers complain of poor training for a vote reporting system that was adopted on the fly. So, basically, anyone who has been training, who's been a volunteer or a caucus leader, they've seen the tool that they're working with. It's not an app. It's an iPad tool. So not an app, wink, wink. And they're basically saying, this is going to be a complete and utter disaster. Now, I mean, again, we should expect at a bare minimum that these state Democratic parties will be able to count the votes and deliver the results to us. But again, we have this situation where we don't know what to expect. Are we going to get the votes on Saturday? Will we know who won? Will they release the results gradually throughout the week as they did in, you know, after Nevada? We don't know. Anyone associated with the Nevada caucus who's been volunteering is saying this, according to Laura Baron Lopez of Politico. In interviews, three caucus volunteers described serious concerns about rushed preparations for the February 22nd election, including insufficient training for a newly adopted electronic vote tally system and confusing instructions on how to administer the caucuses. There are also unanswered questions about the security of internet connections at some 2,000 precinct sites that will transmit results to a central war room set up by the Nevada Democratic Party. Some volunteers who will help run caucuses at precinct locations said they have not been trained on iPads that the party purchased to enter and transmit vote counts. Party officials scrambled to streamline their vote reporting system, settling on Google Forms accessible through a saved link on the iPads. After scrapping a pair of apps they'd been planning to use until a similar app caused the fiasco in Iowa two weeks ago. The volunteers also said that the party has not provided sufficient training on how to use the Google form that will compile vote totals, a complicated process in a caucus. One volunteer who has worked on past caucuses in Nevada said the Google form that will be used to input vote totals wasn't even mentioned during a training session for precinct chairs late last week. The iPads weren't discussed until more than halfway through the presentation. The volunteer said when someone asked how early vote totals would be added to the totals compiled live at each precinct, the person leading the training said not to worry because the iPads would do the math for them. Quote, there were old ladies looking at me like, oh, we're going to have iPads, the volunteer told Politico. After sitting through the two-hour training session, the person predicted the caucus would be a, quote, complete disaster. And this is what a volunteer told Politico. Yikes. Big yikes. This is just incredibly worrying. And the volunteers who are, uh, in charge of administering early voting are saying that there's already difficulties getting the app or excuse me the ipad tool to function uh they're having difficulties getting it to uh, connect to the internet it's uh, not functioning properly in some cases i mean early voting if this were going smoothly we would maybe think that there'd be some hope for the actual caucus itself but i mean they have the test right now, right? Early voting has started and you see a huge turnout, 18,000 plus people casting uh, their ballots in early voting and they're already reporting that there are some issues. So this is incredibly, incredibly worrying. We don't need another Iowa debacle because if this continues to happen, you are going to depress the Democratic Party base. You're helping Donald Trump and Republicans and 
there has to be accountability for this, right? Otherwise, we're not going to be assured that this won't happen going forward. And sure, the Iowa Democratic Party leader, Troy Price, resigned. Although, you know, there is a lot that the DNC did that hasn't really been reported. They, according to leaked documents, have been in charge of a lot of aspects that led to the app malfunctioning or the app itself. They didn't test it. There's a lot of blame to go around, but we haven't seen an adequate amount of accountability that tells us that the people who led to the Iowa debacle are out of the picture, right? We haven't seen resignations from anyone at the DNC, so we're expecting disaster. And a site leader in Nevada went on CNN and you could just hear in his voice, he is not confident that this is going to go well. A week out, early voting starts today. Organizers have had a significant amount of time to get ready for the caucuses. Um, how far along in the trading are you? Are other volunteers? Are you as confident? I'm not quite as confident, but they've been working very hard. And I am personally really encouraging early voting because early voting will minimize many of the risks that we'll be talking about. Uh, they, it is accurate that we're not using an a app per se, but we are using an untested software tool in the caucus room. And I do worry that the caucus process will be confusing and flawed. When you but, say untested, you know, and I apologize if it sounds like I'm cutting you off because we've got a delay, um, but it, when you say untested, how's the training going on this, this uh, new process? We've never, we, we, we have had a lot of training on the broad process. Hmm. We have never seen or handled this tool. Oh, wow. They keep telling us as early as last night that will show it to you when it is ready. So it's not ready so a week out. That's what the trainers have said as recently as yesterday. Yeah, not very reassuring. This process, I'm not ready for whatever this process um, delivers. Now, he said later on in that clip that in the event something goes wrong with the iPad, what the Nevada State Democratic Party is telling caucus leaders and site leaders to do is to call them. Just give them a call, except what do they do in that situation if everything goes wrong at once and the phone lines are blocked? That's kind of what happened in Iowa, right? You had caucus leaders on hold for hours, couldn't get through, the phones were blocked. So, I mean, what do you do in that situation? Like, we need to have a backup plan and then a backup plan. For the backup plan, we need plans a, B, C, D, because if something goes wrong, and it probably will, you have to have some sort of fail-safe. And the fact that people who are going to be, you know, in charge, the volunteers don't have the confidence tells me that this is going to be a huge debacle. And if it's not an outright disaster, then certainly some precincts are going to suffer. Like you're forcing older people who aren't familiar with iPads and technology in general to use iPads. Like why... I. <laughs> Why are you changing this? Just let them do what they did before. It worked fine or as fine as it possibly could with, you know, a caucus because caucuses just in general are clusterfucks. But why are you changing this? I mean, it's just, it's a debacle. It is a complete debacle. And early voting is the thing that gives me hope. Thankfully, you know, there's a, a form of ranked choice, but if you don't actually rank choices, you know, two and three, select them. If you don't select uncommitted, then it's not going to count. 
I mean, what a disaster. What a disaster. You are communicating to people who are on the fence about voting Democrat, like the, the gettable Trump supporters that, look, the Democratic Party, they can't even run an election. So how are we supposed to trust them to run the country? And again, bare minimum. That's all we're asking is for them to do the bare minimum. So I will wait and see. We all should wait and see. But let's just hope that they go above and beyond to make sure that their staffers, their volunteers are trained and they not just know what they're doing, but actually feel confident. Like they can teach it if they need to. Because this is an election. Like this is this is incredibly serious. People's lives are at stake. People take this seriously, rightfully so. So I mean, we shouldn't be worried that these caucus leaders don't feel confident and may make a mistake because they're forced to use an app on an iPad or an iPad tool that they don't think is going to work properly or they don't know how to use it. I mean, this, this shouldn't be happening and they shouldn't be trained this closely. You know, the minute that Iowa went wrong, they should have been training them immediately, but they still don't have all the details. They don't necessarily know. Um, they're having issues with the iPads with regard to them functioning improperly and connecting to the internet. Just whatever you do, make it work. Figure it out and get it done. You have a few days, just, just get it done. I mean, we shouldn't have to be worrying about this. Just just get it done. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's not that difficult. Just count the votes, have something in place. If the app doesn't work, and just, just report the votes to us. That's all we're asking. Just be more competent than Iowa. The bar is very low. At least surpass that bar that they set. That low bar. Do that and I'll be happy. Listen, I cannot stress this enough. One of the most important rules in politics if you are running for any office is to never attack voters. Your surrogates can attack voters. Your supporters can attack other candidate supporters. But the minute you as a candidate decide to attack the people who you may need to vote for you, that's when you are just so desperate that your campaign is uh, irredeemable. Now, this week, we saw both Mike Bloomberg and Joe Biden attack Bernie Sanders supporters. They're vicious. Joe Biden said that Bernie Sanders uh, should speak out and that he would disown them if those were his supporters. Mike Bloomberg, a serial sexual harasser, uh, decided to call out the harassment of Bernie bros, ironically. And now we have Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, rather than pushing back, who supposedly one of the leaders in the progressive movement decided to join in on this course of attacks. And she also decided to herself attack Bernie Sanders supporters when NBC News reporter Ali Vitali asked her about the culinary union's claim that, you know, Sanders supporters were harassing them. And um, she decided to attack Bernie supporters all while preaching unity. You see, you be divisive and attack people and then claim, I'm for unity. Incredible. But nonetheless... Take it away, Liz. When Culinary 226 did come out and criticize Bernie Sanders for Medicare uh -huh. for All, his supporters really attacked them. Do you feel, and you're, you're someone who's actually come under that attack before, back in Iowa, back in January, do you feel like he's done enough to condemn the culture online that stems from his movement? I've said before that we are all responsible for what our supporters do. And I think Bernie has a lot of questions to answer here. And I am particularly worried about what happened to the attacks on members of the Culinary Union, uh, particularly on the women in leadership. The whole notion of publishing their personal addresses, their phone numbers, and then making 
very aggressive threats against their own safety and the safety of their families. That is not how we build an inclusive Democratic Party, and it is not how we build Donald Trump. We do not build on a foundation of hate. We do not build on a foundation of hate. So she is literally implying there that Bernie Sanders, this entire movement, centers on hatred. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I'm not going to deny that, you know, hatred is a factor. It is a factor, certainly. People hate the system. They hate the establishment that is oppressing them, that is bankrupting them, that is literally killing them. So, I mean, sure, hatred is there. But people are channeling that hatred, they're channeling their anger into a political movement that the Democratic Party claimed it wanted. You've got it now. You've got a rainbow coalition. You've got enthusiastic young people finally excited about a Democrat. And apparently now we're all hateful. And she implied that, you know, the culinary union, they were mostly like the women of the culinary union were targeted by Bernie Sanders supporters. So she's implying that Bernie Sanders supporters are sexist as Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Now, my question to Liz is, are these sexist Bernie bros the same ones who in 2014 begged you to run for president? Is that the same people who you believe are uh, now hateful and sexist? Just curious, trying to find out who we're talking about here. Now, when it comes to this claim that Bernie Sanders supporters attacked the culinary union and uh, they were doxxed and harassed, I genuinely don't know what they're talking about. Like, I am a very online person. I'm on Twitter. I'm tweeting every five seconds. And I don't know what they're talking about. Like, I didn't even see the attack that the culinary union released about Medicare for All. I would have probably pushed back if I saw it. But, like, I don't know what they're talking about. And if that happened, of course, that's horrible. We don't condone harassment or doxing. But, I mean, you can't possibly say, as she did, we are all responsible for what our supporters do. And I think Bernie has a lot of questions to answer for here. Because that's impossible. How can you say with a straight face that... You are responsible for the actions of all of your supporters. That makes no sense. If that's the case, if Elizabeth Warren truly believed that, then I expect her to promptly condemn her own supporters who have been harassing Bernie supporter Allison Metzger, who writes, I continue to be hounded by Liz lads for answers that I have already given and documented ad nauseum with no substantive counter bullshit infinity. I'm also receiving DMs asking me if I am planning on a coffin or cremation when I die of cancer. Now, she's saying this because she basically put out a tweet that said if Bernie, if Elizabeth Warren supporters are the reason why we don't get Medicare for all, I will never forgive them. And then after that, she was bombarded with hatred from Elizabeth Warren supporters because a prominent Elizabeth Warren supporter decided to quote tweet it and basically put her on blast when this is just a private citizen. Is Elizabeth Warren going to condemn that? Basically, her own supporters excited about the fact that she has cancer? That's pretty toxic if you ask me. What about this? Glenn Greenwald writes, Here's what one Warren supporter, not some random tweeter, but a blue check journalist with multiple MSNBC appearances and a prominent blog wrote about me this month. Has Elizabeth Warren demanded that this stop? I hope so. This kind of toxicity has no place in our discourse or unity. And this person said, Fuck Glenn Greenwald. I hope he dies in prison. And as you all know, Glenn Greenwald has been the target of a fascist government in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. And he's a journalist. 
Is Elizabeth Warren going to condemn this? Is she going to condemn all of her supporters who've been harassing Native American women? And as you can see from these screenshots here that this user posted, Warren supporters have been the worst when it comes to online attacks. And they're saying that they've received the most attacks from Warren stands. You also have a prominent Warren surrogate, not a supporter, but a paid surrogate, Ashley Preston, have a history of racism and homophobia exposed. And Elizabeth Warren didn't come out to condemn the person that she hired. I've said before that we are all responsible for what our supporters do. Why hasn't Elizabeth Warren condemned all of this yet? Maybe she doesn't actually believe that you are responsible for the actions of your supporters. Maybe she's just saying this because she's desperate and this is a pathetic attempt to get people to move away from Bernie Sanders and rally behind her. Well, guess what? That's not happening. That is not happening. You got trounced in Iowa and New Hampshire, and 538 is projecting that on Super Tuesday, the only state where you're going to win any delegates will likely be Massachusetts, which is your home state. So for someone to claim that they're the unity candidate when we're not unifying behind you, we're all coalescing around Bernie Sanders. I mean, how can you claim that you're the unity candidate with a straight face when the left is rallying behind someone else? And when you're being divisive, you're attacking Bernie Sanders and not just the candidate, but his supporters. And you're the unity candidate. Sure, Jan. You see, the thing about Elizabeth Warren is that she just refuses to listen. She likes to talk at people because she's smart. She's the wonky technocratic millionaire and she expects you to listen. But we're telling her we don't want to unify behind you. We want Bernie Sanders. We tried unifying behind you in 2014, but you told us no. You were too afraid to stand up to the Clinton machine. Bernie stepped up and now we're with him. So we are telling you very clearly, it's reflected in the polls and in voting, that we don't want you. We want Bernie Sanders. So why aren't you listening? Like, the same is true with Medicare for All. Because, like, I was surprised that she stood her ground for so long. But the minute she started to lose her frontrunner status was when she moved away from Medicare for All. Because clearly she wasn't listening to voters. I mean, think about this. The way that she pitched her... Uh, Medicare for All proposal and her rollout plan was that, look, we need two separate rollouts. We have to first roll out a public option, and then we have to roll out Medicare for All in my third year as president, when I'll probably lose the House or the Senate, as historically most presidents do. That was her goal. Now, the reason why we had to push for, you know, not one, but two major legislative battles, I mean, Obamacare in and of itself, we fought for that for, what, more than a year? And it was still huge. We barely got it passed. It was voted along party lines. But the reason why we have to fight for one legislative battle and then move on to fight for another legislative battle is because after we get people a public option and we put Medicare for all into their hands, then they'll want to keep it. Well, this is just another example of Elizabeth Warren talking at people and not actually listening to voters because you don't have to put it in their hands. We have the shitty healthcare system in our hands already. And we're telling you, we don't, we don't want this. We want Medicare for all. Look at the exit polls for Iowa and New Hampshire. All Democrats support Medicare for all overwhelmingly. Not just Democrats. Look at public opinion polls. Most Americans, a majority now support Medicare for all. But yet she's telling us, no, I need you to have a public option so that way you'll want Medicare for all more and then it will be easier for us to get it. No, you're not listening. We're telling you we want it now. That's what we want. So we don't believe your strategy here. And... This tells us that she doesn't even understand what this battle will be about. This isn't about you convincing us to give us Medicare for all. You've already won us over in that regard. We want Medicare for all. This will be a battle between the health insurance industry 
and whoever becomes president if they choose to pursue Medicare for all. I promise you that after having a public option for two years, they're not going to be any more persuaded to just die and go away so Medicare for all can come to pass. Like, that's absolutely delusional thinking. But it just goes to show you that Elizabeth Warren, she has a plan for everything. She doesn't care what you want. It's what she wants and what she says. So she never listens to voters. And here she is now condemning all of us as sexist Bernie bros who are harassing and doxing members of the culinary union. But yet, her supporters are innocent little angels. I mean, this is the problem with Elizabeth Warren. And as she claims that Bernie Sanders supporters are toxic, well, back in, what was it, August, October, when Bernie Sanders had his heart attack, when she was riding high in the polls, when she was in first place, you had some Elizabeth Warren supporters call on Bernie Sanders to drop out and unify behind her because she had the momentum. And now that she has zero momentum, now that she has no real path towards the nomination, she's calling us toxic and she's basically saying, you know what, in spite of Bernie Sanders having all the momentum, leave him and unify behind me, even though my campaign is going to crash and burn at any minute now. I mean, listen, Elizabeth Warren has to ask herself this. Is she serious about getting progressive policies passed? I think that her actions will tell us how she really feels, right? Because if you truly were serious about uniting the left and getting progressive policies codified into law, at a minimum, you would at least stop attacking Bernie Sanders and his supporters over and over and over again. And if she truly believed it, she'd drop out. Now, it's her right to stay in as long as she wants. I can disagree with it, but that's her right. But if she truly believed in progressive policies and she wasn't just self-interested, she would at least practice the unity that she preaches. But the fact that we can't even get that, the fact that she has become a main opponent to Bernie Sanders, I mean, I, I just don't understand what she's doing. If I'm Elizabeth Warren currently, I'm seeing the writing on the wall, I'm realizing that my campaign should probably start winding down, I'm pulling ads from Nevada already, as she did, and I'm trying to carve a path for myself for the future. I'm uniting with Bernie to take down Biden and Bloomberg, so maybe I could be his running mate. I'm uniting with Bernie Sanders, so maybe I can get a job in his administration. But instead, she's just trying to go out of her way to not just attack Bernie Sanders, but turn off his supporters by attacking them directly. Like, you can condemn attacks on the culinary union, that's fine. But don't generalize, don't claim that that's representative of all of Bernie Sanders supporters if we even want to claim that they were attacked. Because again, I have not seen these attacks. We're just going off of what the Culinary Union claims. So I mean, Elizabeth Warren, keep preaching unity while you refuse to shake Bernie Sanders' hand on a national stage when everyone is watching. Keep preaching unity as you condemn people who you would need if you want to run in 2024, 2028. I mean, keep doing it because we're seeing who you are. This is mask off. We're seeing the real Elizabeth Warren. I thought that, you know, you just weren't as good as Bernie Sanders because you lack political courage and you have horrible political instincts and because you surround yourself around people who are just terrible, who are democratic strategists, who are just lunatics, who hate Bernie Sanders and progressives. But really, we're seeing the true Elizabeth Warren here. She was never serious about any of this. She talked a bit big game. She, you know, had a pretty good record up until now. But when push comes to shove, when the left really needs her, she's not there for us. This isn't the first time that she has shown us that. So this is the real Elizabeth Warren. Remember this when she expects us to help her or support her down the line. Because now that she's not here for us for a second time, a second election in a row, she can guarantee, she can count on us not being there for her. So, because a lot of polls are currently showing that Mike Bloomberg is a viable contender for the 2020 nomination, a lot of us 
are grappling with the prospect of a Mike Bloomberg nomination or a presidency. I think he probably wouldn't get that far because he'd get clobbered by Donald Trump. But still, the fact that he's able to make it this far, like we have to ask ourselves a lot of questions. There's got to be some introspection about our democracy and how we let it get to this point. So we're asking ourselves all types of questions, but the guys over at Pod Save America, they are taking this in a different direction. Rather than saying, you know, what institutional mechanisms allowed this to happen, they're blaming the left, essentially, for Mike Bloomberg's rise. You see, because if everyone is a centrist, then basically no one is a centrist. So you know how Republicans call everything socialist, including Obama and, you know, Hillary Clinton? Well, that is, you know, an attack that becomes less persuasive over time. So what he's going to tell you in this clip is that we on the left have essentially done the same thing with everyone, and now people aren't going to take us seriously when we explain how Mike Bloomberg is a centrist. This is truly ridiculous, but nonetheless, we'll let them take it away. Look, I think the other thing that's tough here is there's a lot of folks on, on the left who spent a lot of this campaign telling us that Pete Buttigieg is uh, is some centrist shill and not a good enough Democrat, and Joe Biden is not a good enough Democrat, and Amy Klobuchar is not a good enough Democrat, and it's like now we have someone in Mike Bloomberg who really isn't a good enough Democrat, who really is a moderate Republican, and because a lot of times they spent this entire campaign telling us that good mainstream Democrats like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Joe Biden aren't good enough for us. It's going to be harder for a lot of people to believe that that's true about Mike Bloomberg when it is true about Mike Bloomberg. This is the fable we will tell our children. A boy who cried centrist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, now now hold, because I've got one more clip to show you. Um, I don't have the full context for this. Nonetheless, um, I've got to play this. These people on the left who, are, who have large Twitter followings, look, I know you don't like us. I know you're going to keep fucking tweeting at us. Fine, do whatever the fuck you want. But if you want your candidate to win, you've got to shape up. What do you mean shape up? We're winning. <laughs> like what? Uh, let me let me just put things into perspective because this podcast features, you know, former Obama alum, right? You won because of us. We were part of that Obama coalition. We were called Obama boys back in 2008. And now we're the Bernie bros and we're winning, right? We're beating the centrists. So when you tell us to shape up, I don't know what that means. You shape up. You fall in line. Fuck are you talking about? Now, uh, this is just it really is an incredible argument to make because you can't possibly be this stupid, and I don't think that he is. I think he's just being disingenuous. Um, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, we call them centrists because they are quite literally centrists, and if we tried to call them, you know, progressives or socialists, I think that they'd push back themselves against that claim because they are presenting themselves as centrists. So what are we supposed to do? Just accept that they are progressive? I mean, that term already has been watered down, but what does that even mean? I mean, we are ideologically, diametrically opposed to what they stand for, and vice versa, right? I mean, we want Medicare for all, they're fighting against it. We want to cancel student debt, they're fighting against that. So what are we supposed to do? We are at odds with each other, ideologically speaking, so are we just supposed to say, well, you know what, because they have that D next to their name, they're great. And to say, well, you know what, Mike Bloomberg now is not going to be taken seriously as a centrist since you guys call everyone centrist. Except the Democratic Party is a fucking centrist party, you dipshit. 
Look at the parties in the UK and all throughout Europe. Their right-wing parties are ideologically more in line with Democrats than they are with Republicans. Like the Tories in the UK, Boris Johnson, for example, he may want to privatize portions of Britain's national health system, but he still believes that, you know, basic healthcare should be free at the point of service. There are Democrats who don't just not believe that, but they're not even hiding that. They are openly running against Medicare for All. Pete Buttigieg attacks Medicare for All every other day, and the reason why he's attacking it after previously supporting it is because he took money from these large corporations, the health insurance industry, Big Pharma, and now he's doing their bidding. Like, to not call that out is disgusting. You are misinforming your audience if you're not telling them about that. So who watches this show? Like, that's my question. Who watches this trash? Because you are just as bad as mainstream media. So why would you seek out an alternative non-mainstream media source if you're going to just espouse the same fucking things that you hear on MSNBC? This is fucking stupid. And you have to understand that nuance is a thing that exists, right? Amy Klobuchar and, you know, uh, Mayor Pete maybe right here ideologically, and they're centrist, but you can still say that there's differences between them and Mike Bloomberg. Yes, he is demonstrably worse because he is further to the right than them. He's just right wing. I wouldn't say that Mike Bloomberg is, you know, um, centrist. I'd probably say that he is about where Donald Trump is or the average Republican is, ideologically speaking. But just because he's worse than Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg doesn't make our criticisms of them any less clear. They are clear. You just don't want to listen. You want to rich explain to people on your fucking ivory tower. And because you worked for Obama, you know everything about politics. No, when you worked for Obama throughout that process, how many seats did Democrats lose? A thousand. More than a thousand. Okay, and we were part of that coalition. So you don't get to just talk at us and claim that you know everything. And here's the reality. You have a large, large portion of the left, namely millennials and Zoomers, who are registering to vote for the very first time, who will not come out and support a Democrat who they don't believe in. 2016 proved that. So you can either accept that if the party wants to remain viable, they have to shift left, or you can just try to squeeze centrists and the left together in one party and see how that continues to work out. You have Republicans who are united. All you have to do is throw some red meat to their immigrant-hating base and they love it. They don't care who. They'll vote for a fucking turd if you put a little, you know, toothpick in that turd with a sign that says, I hate immigrants. They'll vote for whatever. But on the left, we actually have standards. People around this country are not going to stand in line for hours to vote if they don't believe that a candidate is going to do much for them. If they think the difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, for example, isn't large enough to warrant them getting out and voting, they're going to stay home. And the fact that you are denigrating people who are calling out not just the centrism of Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Joe Biden, but actual corruption, conflicts of interest with the financial contributions that they're taking, I mean, it just shows that you are an elitist. You're an elitist. You don't care about the plight of poor people. You don't care that there's been this ongoing class warfare that's been waged against the poor by elites. You don't care that people are struggling and they're desperate currently. You don't care. You're just saying, how dare you criticize Democrats, vote blue no matter who, uh, fall in line, and see, you criticized Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and all these shitty Democrats, so, you know, all the shit libs that I love too much, and now, you know, we have a real threat, and you kind of ruined that, thanks, lefties. 
No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. This is a primary, and there is a civil war that's going on in the Democratic Party. If the left doesn't win that civil war, then Republicans will be in control. They will hold on to power for decades to come because you have millennials and Zoomers who are not excited to vote for someone like Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, or Joe Biden, who is offering them fuck all. Okay, you have people dying, thousands of people every fucking year because they don't have health insurance. I'm sorry that you're mad at them for not coming out to vote blue no matter who when, you know, they are still going to be in the same predicament on the verge of bankruptcy due to medical debt or die because they don't have health insurance. I'm sorry. Yes, there may be a difference between Democrats and Republicans. We don't want to perpetuate that false equivalence, but you've got to understand the way that voters perceive this is i'm not going to come out and pay the cost of voting standing in line for hours sacrificing my time maybe taking off of work if the payoff isn't going to be worthwhile people are self-interested they will vote for candidates that are going to do good things for them amy klobuchar isn't saying what she'll do for voters she's just saying you can't have medicare for all pete Buttigieg clearly doesn't give a flying fuck about any voters he just wants to be president because you know he he wants to be the next obama you have joe biden who is just running because he thinks he can you know run away with it because he was the former vp i mean you have people who clearly aren't representing the interests of working class americans and then finally you have someone like bernie sanders and for the first time in almost a decade you have people energized to support him and what do you do you dog on them for daring to compare contrast the candidates shameful this is absolutely shameful this is elitist garbage and if you listen to this podcast turn it off you might as well put on cnn because you're gonna get the same political analysis as you'd get from these elitists so if the 2016 democratic party primary wasn't eye-opening to you then 2020 should confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that the democratic party has absolutely no principles they stand for nothing and represent no one they are vapid they are hollow and they are not to be taken seriously and the only utility that they have for us on the left is that they have the infrastructure for us to take over and kick them all out because i mean look at this in a second they flipped and they're supporting someone who is a racist serial sexual harasser who's an oligarch that effectively bought his way to second place after for years now browbeating Bernie Sanders supporters in the left for supposedly not being woke enough, saying that we don't actually care about communities of color and this left movement is just too white. Well, now they're supporting the worst possible person if they truly claim to care about communities of color, marginalized people, identities identity politics for lack of a better word and on top of that after screeching at the top of their lungs how we can't support bernie sanders because he's not a real democrat look how quickly they fall in line to support a republican so the democratic party is an absolute joke and mike bloomberg's rise reveals that to you it reveals how craven and morally bankrupt they are as a party because they're supporting mike bloomberg not necessarily because they believe what he's saying politically but because he has money. And the Democratic Party, generally speaking, they don't care about policy so much as they care about maintaining their seat, maintaining their position of power. That's all that this is about. And if he's got the money, then they're going to be there for him, regardless of what they said, you know, about uh, voting Democrat and uh, supporting the woke candidates. It, it's just, it honestly is embarrassing. 
And the reason why Mike Bloomberg is so powerful, so persuasive, and the reason why Democrats are basically now being openly hypocritical is because the amount of money he's spending, it truly can never be overstated. He has already, at this point in time, remember, we're just in February, two contests have taken place. He's already outspent Obama's 2012 general election campaign spending. I'll repeat that. He has spent more already than Obama spent on his entire re-election campaign at $338 million, and he is open to spending a billion on this election. And, you know, aside from all of the millions of dollars on television advertisements that he's buying, that money is, you know, it's not just getting his name out there, it's clearly influencing networks to cover him more generously, or at a minimum, to ignore his scandals. He's donated to the DNC, he's donated to state Democratic parties, elected officials at local levels, hence why so many mayors are endorsing him. This individual bought the Democratic Party. I don't know how else to describe it. He bought an entire political party. That is where we're at in American politics. We are in the latest stage of capitalism, where you can become so rich that you can buy a political party. Think about that for a minute. Think about the implications that this has on democracy. If he proves that this strategy is successful, can you imagine what to expect in 2024? 2028, we're just going to take turns with an oligarch running for president, Jeff Bezos, the Walton family, Mark Zuckerberg, and it doesn't really matter what their record is or, you know, what they represent, what their ideological leanings are, if they even have that, because they can just overwhelm people with advertisements and they construct this alternate reality where we're thinking that Mike Bloomberg is actually a candidate who stands up for racial justice and not actually knowing that he's that racist asshole who implemented stop and frisk and claimed that, you know, black and brown people don't know how to behave in the workplace. I mean, it's truly just the biggest possible threat to democracy. And if he's able to successfully buy his way to the nomination, or at least, you know, remain in until the convention, that in and of itself is so... It's just... I can't even describe it. I don't think I can with a straight face, say that we live in a democracy. Even now, you can argue that we're in an all-out oligarchy. But, I mean, if he actually is successful with this strategy, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's, it's horrifying. But here's what we need to do. We need to be very clear about the threat that he poses to democracy, and we need to take notes right now. Be very, you know, scrupulous in what you do, and acknowledge that there's a lot of people, a lot of sellouts in the Democratic Party who are choosing to support Mike Bloomberg, not because they believe in what he represents. He represents nothing but oligarchy. And anyone who is choosing to, you know, not just refuse to speak out, but actually go so far as to endorse Mike Bloomberg absolutely must never be able to win another election again because if you're sitting by and you're quiet as somebody buys an entire democratic party that in and of itself shows that you have no political courage or moral courage but if you go so far as to endorse what he's doing there is no place even in the democratic party for you and i know that they like to say that this party is you know a big 10 party that it's so big that even we can include Republican billionaires who are racist in it. No, in actuality, 
the left isn't going to stand for that. And if he is the nominee, we have to make it very clear that we're not voting for him. The Democratic Party needs to know that we will not tolerate this, because if we tolerate this in this election cycle, we're going to have to tolerate the next billionaire oligarch in the following election cycle. And let's all remember, Donald Trump self-financed a lot of his campaign in the Republican primary in 2016. So Trump already kind of proved that it's successful. But Mike Bloomberg is showing what happens when, you know, you put that strategy on steroids. So anyone who isn't speaking up, note their silence because it's deafening. And people who are actually endorsing Mike Bloomberg, they are a special kind of evil enablers. And they absolutely must be primaried. So I want to go to this list that was put together by a Twitter user who lists all of the endorsers in Congress of Mike Bloomberg, and if they have a primary challenger, who that individual is. So the first is Max Rose, who represents New York's 11th Congressional District. We have Stephanie Murray from Florida's 7th. We have Harley Ruda from California's 48th. We have Bobby Rush from Illinois' first, and he actually does have multiple primary challengers, but I actually brought on Robert Emmons on the program. He's a phenomenal candidate. He's been endorsed by Our Revolution. He is a true progressive. So if you are in that first congressional district, you have to support him. You can't allow someone who endorsed Mike Bloomberg to remain in power because they're showing they don't care about democracy. We've got Scott Peters of California's 52nd. He does have a primary opponent. Her name is Nancy Cassidy. We have Ben McAdams, who is representing Utah's 4th. His primary opponent is Daniel Beckstrand. We have Juan Vargas, representing California's 51st. We have Mikey Sherrill, who's representing New Jersey's 11th. And he has Mark Washburn as a primary opponent. We have Haley Stevens, representing Michigan's 11th Congressional District. We have Lucy McBeth, representing Georgia's 6th Congressional District. We have Stacey Plaskett, at-large representative for the Virgin Islands. We have Gregory Meeks, representing New York's 5th Congressional District. And just a little side note about Gregory Meeks. He claimed that we can't possibly support Bernie Sanders because he's not a Democrat. He literally endorsed the Republican Mike Bloomberg. Isn't that amazing? Mike Bloomberg, I think he was an independent up until 2018, and then he finally registered as a Democrat. So that's all it takes. I'm sure that if Bernie Sanders actually registered as a Democrat, even though he's running in the primary, but if he registered as a Democrat, then they'd all change their minds, right? Now, Gregory Meeks does have a primary challenger, Shaniyat Chowdhury. Support this individual, donate to them, I mean, this cannot be tolerated. We have Ted Deutsch, representing Florida's 22nd Congressional District, also has a primary opponent, Imtiaz Ahmad Mohammed. Every single one of these people who are endorsing Mike Bloomberg, they are basically greenlighting the death of our democracy. They're communicating to you that they absolutely could not care less about the United States devolving into full-blown oligarchy. And I use the word devolving into full-blown, you know, oligarchy a little bit loosely here because you can even argue that we're already a full-blown oligarchy if you're judging that based on policy outcomes because we already know that's dictated by what elites want. So, I mean, if you truly want to cement our status as a plutocracy or an oligarchy, Mike Bloomberg successful do that and these people are complicit. They're saying, you know what? I support what he's doing. I think it's perfectly reasonable for an oligarch to be able to buy his way to the nomination, buy an entire fucking Democratic Party in the largest, you know, most prosperous country in the world. 
I believe someone can be so rich that they literally can buy one of two major political parties. How insane is that? So we've got, you know, the remaining Koch brother who has purchased the Republican Party, and we have this oligarch, Mike Bloomberg, who has purchased the Democratic Party. Why not just, like, give them the keys already? Well, like, what's the point of us even voting? That's how bad the situation is becoming. This is the latest stage of capitalism before the system just collapses in on itself because this is not a tenable situation. Like, this can't go on. You can't try to prop up this system that's wholly illegitimate anymore. So all of these people, they've got to be out of politics. Everything that they say going forward should not be taken seriously because they're proving that they just care about their own careers. And I'm sure that Mike Bloomberg gave them money. Either way, these people have to go. They cannot be trusted. They must be primaried. Any, anyone who supports Mike Bloomberg is the enemy. And the reason why we say that is because if you can just sit idly by while someone buys our democracy then just admit that you don't care about democracy. Just admit that you're cool with oligarchy and authoritarianism at worst. I mean, this is an individual who changed the laws in New York to give himself a third term. This is what liberals are screaming about Trump possibly doing. Crying about, oh, what if he doesn't leave office if he loses in 2020? You have someone who is as bad as Donald Trump, if not worse in many ways, because he's more competent than Donald Trump. So who knows the damage that he can do? And if he takes over the Democratic Party, then, I mean, we just have two far-right parties? Is that where we're at? I mean, there's got to be some point where we say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to vote blue no matter who. We will never support Mike Bloomberg. I don't give a shit who he's running against. He can run against the devil. We're not going to give in to this. We're not going to legitimize this illegitimate process where he fucking bought his way to the primary. So anyone who supports that, long story short, they're part of the problem and they've got to go. They should never be able to find a job in politics again. All of these people must be primaried. So we have another Democratic Party primary debate taking place in Las Vegas ahead of the Nevada primary on Saturday, and I've got good news and semi-bad news. The good news is that we knocked out one billionaire because Tom Steyer did not qualify for this debate. Hasta la vista, don't care, you should have never been able to buy your way onto that debate stage to begin with. But the bad news is that Mike Bloomberg, because the DNC changed the rules in his favor, has qualified. Now, that's bad because it shows real corruption. I mean, after donating to the DNC, they changed the rules for you. Like, that is inherently disgusting. It should be sickening to everyone. But on another hand, he should have to face the music. He should be challenged for his record. And if the mainstream media isn't going to challenge him, then certainly he needs to at least own up to what he's done as mayor of New York City, his record of donating to Republicans, his racist and sexist remarks from the other candidates. They should be able to challenge him, right? Because up until this point, he's ran this parallel Democratic primary where he just releases the these ads and he's been hiding his face. He oftentimes doesn't even appear in these ads. He just has people talking about him. But, I mean, we need to know who you are. Voters have a right to know about you if you've bought your way up to second place nationally, essentially. So, he has qualified for this debate. Will he actually show up? That is a different question. I don't know. But here's what I will say. 
uh, when it comes to what we should expect or look for for these candidates, if I'm Mike Bloomberg, I have to make a really good first impression because for a lot of people, nationally, this is the first time that they're seeing Mike Bloomberg, the man himself, the man behind the curtain, because they've seen his ads now. You can't watch TV without seeing his ads. So now they're going to see, is he really what he's been leading us to believe? So he's going to have to make a good first impression. And on top of that, he's going to have to be able to withstand attacks from the other candidates that will inevitably come. Because, I mean, if you're going to take on Donald Trump, you've got to prove that you have the ability to fight. So he's going to have to do that and be able to defend himself. You can't deflect and cry about mean Bernie bros exposing your racism and sexism. You are going to have to defend your record. Will he be able to do that? I don't know. Now, when it comes to the other individuals who qualified, we have Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Now, Joe Biden needs a good performance. And when I say good performance, I want to emphasize a really, really, really good performance. He is hanging on for dear life. Odds are he's going to get uh, crushed in Nevada. And he's clinging to that hope that maybe he can pull out a victory in South Carolina. I think that the odds are in his favor at this point in time. But if Bernie really does perform really well in Nevada, like the polls are showing he will, that could give him enough momentum to carry him to victory in South Carolina, which is bad news for Joe Biden. So he's hanging on and he's got to have a good performance. He should be attacking Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar primarily, even though Bernie Sanders is the front runner. You have three individuals competing for that centrist lane, and he has to show people why he's the one to take on Bernie Sanders. He has to communicate to voters that he is the anti-Bernie choice if people don't like Bernie Sanders. If I'm Pete Buttigieg, he's got to reassert himself, go after Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar, and try to position himself as the anti-Bernie candidate. I mean, Amy Klobuchar has now kind of um, usurped him, at least, when it comes to momentum. She came in third place, but because the media was focused more on that than his second-place victory in New Hampshire, well, she's kind of stealing that spotlight away from him. So he's got to try to have a good performance and steal it back from her. If I'm Amy Klobuchar, I'm just doing what I say people to judge and uh, Joe Biden should do. Try to present yourself as the competent anti-Bernie choice, because... You know, you have three moderates essentially splitting the votes, and even if they can all pull delegates at the convention and try to steal it from Bernie Sanders, I mean, you want to have a really good case for yourself. You want a strong plurality, and she's got to make this case for herself. She's not doing well with voters of color, so she needs to at least recognize, you know, the issues that face the Latino community, black and brown people, and she hasn't been doing well with them. So going into Nevada, she has to prove herself and she can assert that she's actually cognizant of the issues that these communities of color face at this debate. Will she do it? Probably not. I'm sure that she's going to say the same thing that she said throughout the past, you know, eight debates and the media will once again declare her as the winner because they love her all of a sudden. Um, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, I don't know what to say about Elizabeth Warren. She could come in a distant second, according to polls in Nevada. But if I'm Elizabeth Warren, here's what I'm doing. I am teaming up with Bernie Sanders strategically in this debate. Now, she's been going in the opposite direction, attacking Bernie, attacking his supporters. But she did the best at these debates when her and Bernie worked together. If they formed this alliance at this debate, and if she actually defended Bernie Sanders when the attacks inevitably are lobbed at him by the moderates... 
then she can get a lot of momentum. People can really, you know, maybe uh, rekindle the flame. I don't think that's really possible, but at least not dislike her as much because of her recent, uh, you know, uh, divisiveness, if you will, as she preaches uh, unity. So if she were able to kind of like ride on Bernie's coattails and try to defend him and be his wingman or wingwoman during this debate, I think that could help her and maybe, you know, reignite talks of this Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren ticket. Will she do that? Probably not. She's most likely going to take a back seat during the healthcare portion of this debate that will inevitably come up, not mention Medicare for all, and just come up with these vague, you know, platitudes about selfies and whatnot. I'm not expecting much, but she needs a good performance, and I can't see any other way that she can actually shine unless she really tries to reinvigorate the left, and it's a long shot, but it's your only hope right now. When it comes to Bernie Sanders, he needs a solid performance, but if I'm him, I'm probably not going to be super aggressive, but if somebody does you know, attack me, I'm definitely counterpunching if I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm going to be able to show that I can absorb blows and counterpunch, you know, give people a taste of their own medicine, and I'm certainly going after Bloomberg if he says anything about me, if he says anything about toxic Bernie bros, I am talking about his toxic behavior, his treatment of people who worked for him, the women, 64 individuals who claim that, you know, they were sexually harassed by Mike Bloomberg. That's what I would do if I'm Bernie Sanders, but overall, this debate, I mean, no matter what happens, I think that the outcome is already predetermined by the mainstream media. Bernie Sanders will not win according to their standards. Maybe Mike Bloomberg will win because they don't want to say that he lost. Maybe Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg pull it off. Maybe Joe Biden has a comeback. But we don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that what's most important is what voters think when watching this. The non-politically savvy, just casual observers. What they see uh, as strength is what's going to matter the most. And we won't really know until people vote on Saturday at the Nevada caucus. But um, this will be interesting. Um, maybe Mike Bloomberg will show up. Maybe he won't. Um, if he doesn't, he's certainly a coward because the DNC already changed the rules at his behest. So you might as well show up and face the music. You've got to at some point. You can't hide your face forever. Will he do it? I don't know, but uh, this will be certainly interesting if he is there, and I would advise you to bring your popcorn. So look out for my post-debate analysis the day after the debate airs. That debate was crazy. Like, the first hour of that debate was probably one of the most explosive debates I have ever watched, and I truly believe that 20, 30 years down the line, political scientists are going to be looking back at this debate and really judging every aspect of it, really analyzing how a billionaire who tried to buy his way into the White House got absolutely embarrassed on national television. That was I don't even know how to describe it. Like, if I say it was brutal for Mike Bloomberg, that really doesn't do it justice. And usually, I don't recommend this because these debates are so toxic. But I honestly think that if you didn't see this debate, go back, watch the first half hour, uh, one hour at a maximum, and you will see that was incredible. And for all of this talk of unity, that was real unity that I saw, where you had each candidate basically taking turns dunking on the billionaire who tried to buy his way onto the debate stage, with the exception of Pete Buttigieg, who just had his nose up in the air the entire time, and was basically trying to portray Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg as equal threats to democracy and the party, which is interesting, but we'll get into all of that. First, let's talk about some numbers. 
So when it comes to talk time, Elizabeth Warren clocked in 16 minutes and 35 seconds. Amy Klobuchar actually came in second place this time with a total of 15 minutes and 55 seconds. We had Bernie Sanders with 15 minutes and 24 seconds. Pete Buttigieg with 14 minutes and 46 seconds. Joe Biden with 13 minutes and 25 seconds. And Mike Bloomberg with 13 minutes and 2 seconds. So there is a lot to talk about with regard to this debate. I think that this debate may actually change the dynamics of the Democratic Party primary in a way. That's how influential I think that this will be. But one thing that I know for sure is that this was a good debate for Bernie Sanders. He came in as the definitive frontrunner, and I think he left as the frontrunner. Although there's things to talk about here, because we had a lot of admissions from the candidates that they basically don't really believe in democracy, with the exception of Bernie Sanders. But let me just jump right into it, get to the winners, the losers, and a new category that I am introducing. So when it comes to the winners, in this category, I am putting Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden here, but there is a clear standout, and that is Elizabeth Warren. I think she absolutely dominated this debate, and she did what she needed to do. She needed to have a good night. She was hanging on by a thread going into this debate. The uh, 538 projections claimed that she had a 1 in 100 shot of winning a majority of pledged delegates. Now, um, that's that's bad odds, right? It's really bad odds. To put it into perspective, Bernie Sanders has about a 41% chance of winning a majority of pledged delegates. Warren had a 1 in 100 chance. So she needed a phenomenal performance. She needed to go after the other candidates, be aggressive, and that she did. She attacked Bernie Sanders predictably because that's what she's been doing, but she finally ended this weird alliance between her and Amy Klobuchar. She attacked Pete Buttigieg, and perhaps more so than anyone else, she obliterated Mike Bloomberg. It was a bloodbath, and individuals online who are reporters who were at, you know, uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, debate-watching uh, campaign headquarters or whatever, they were saying, like, members of his team were groaning during some of the exchanges between him and Elizabeth Warren because she absolutely exposed him. But that's not to say that Bernie Sanders didn't, you know, have a couple of times dunking on uh, Mike Bloomberg, asking him where his tax haven is, telling him that, you know, we live in a country where there is socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor, to cite Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was really brutal. Now, even though I think that Elizabeth Warren was the winner of this debate, I think that Bernie Sanders was in a fairly close second and more importantly he was able to maintain as the front runner like he kind of just sat back as Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar took turns arguing and Elizabeth Warren and claim Amy Klobuchar took turns arguing and Bernie Sanders just was riding high he stepped in when he needed to he had a phenomenal performance and I think that this really is going to um, not change the trajectory for him I think he's going into Nevada very strong and um, this is setting him up very well for Super Tuesday. We'll say that. Now, there's one more debate next Tuesday before South Carolina and Super Tuesday. But I think Bernie Sanders did a phenomenal job. Even though Elizabeth Warren is the winner, maybe she'll get a boost from this. Still, Bernie is looking really good. Now, Joe Biden, I do believe he is a winner, but he's not anywhere near... Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I do believe that there's some distance with regard to the winners in this category. You have, you know... Uh, Elizabeth Warren way at the top as the main winner. You have Bernie Sanders in second. And then at a distant, distant third, you have Joe Biden. And throughout the first half of this debate, he performed phenomenally well. He was articulate. He didn't seem to stumble over his own words. He was landing some pretty strong shots. 
at Mike Bloomberg, and I think that the audience was feeling it. But towards the second half, didn't do too well. Uh, during his closing statement, he was protested for his role in deporting 3 million undocumented immigrants, and he should have been protested for that. That's disgusting. Um, overall, I think he did pretty well. Now, in the loser category, I have Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. Now, I know what you're thinking. Where's Mike Bloomberg? Hang on, we'll talk about him. But Pete Buttigieg, um, I don't know what he was trying to do, but he was attacking Bernie Sanders more than he was Mike Bloomberg during this debate. And throughout the entire debate, you can see his Twitter feed with his campaign attacking Bernie Sanders. Like, you can see that this little rat was jockeying for some type of power. And, you know, he knows that Mike Bloomberg going into this debate was one of the front runners, which is maybe why he chose to hold his fire. But you can see he wants to be the VP. He wants money from Mike Bloomberg if he's the nominee. So it's just, it's all so fake. It's inauthentic. You could see how disingenuous he is. He has the same rehearsed lines at every single debate. And this time, what was different when it came to that healthcare portion, where he tries to pretend as if he has the moral high ground, was he got exposed by Bernie Sanders. Like, he was talking about how his plan, Medicare for All Who Wanted, has majority support. Factually incorrect, Medicare for All has majority support. Elizabeth Warren called him out on that. You had Bernie Sanders call out his lies on Medicare for All. And not only that, but call out the financial contributions, the support he's received from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, this is just, this is bad for him. This is bad. And you can really tell he was getting on everyone's nerves, uh, namely Amy Klobuchar who I don't think that mainstream media can possibly spin as having a good night. The question about her prosecutorial record was brought up, and that was really, really cringeworthy. The, the uh, portion of the debate where she was asked about the fact that she forgot in, a, in an interview with Telemundo the Mexican president's name, and then she tried to say Obrador and almost fucked up his name again. I mean, that was genuinely cringeworthy, and you can see her like visibly shaking when Pete Buttigieg, towards the end of the debate, kept trying to push her and push her buttons more and more and more, and it like honestly looked like she was going to physically assault him. Like It was wild to watch. And when Elizabeth Warren said that she looked at her healthcare plan and it's like two sentences, embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. So I think that this Warren-Klobuchar alliance, maybe it was just one for strategy and not necessarily ideology, it's officially over. Now, when it comes to Mike Bloomberg, I had to create a special category for him because he lost so bad. He was so brutally demolished that I am creating the loser who got knocked the fuck out category because holy fucking shit that was a bloodbath and i mean mike bloomberg was demolished within 10 minutes and then they just kept taking more and more and more shots and it's funny because everyone's paying attention this is his debut right he's running all of these ads spending hundreds of millions of dollars hiding behind a curtain and i think voters are seeing why he didn't want to show his face he has zero charisma zero he comes off as a creepy out of touch republican claimed that he earned his 50 billion dollars and then bernie sanders had a great line actually i think that your workers are the ones who earned that he just he demonstrated that he's not cut out for the democratic party as centrist and center right as the democratic party is 
He is out of touch. He's too conservative for the modern Democratic Party, which really says a lot. And he just couldn't defend himself. No matter what he did, he couldn't land any uh, lines. The audience was actually audibly groaning at some of the things that he said. He was booed. He called Bernie Sanders a communist. You could see that he was like sweating and desperate. I've never seen a performance this horrible. Mike Bloomberg got knocked the fuck out, and I don't know how else to describe it. You got knocked the fuck out, man! I mean, that first hour was probably going to be remembered for him as the most embarrassing moment of his life. Because you spend all this money to get on this debate stage, you basically have the DNC change the rules to accommodate you, and you get knocked the fuck out on debate one? Oh, that's so embarrassing. That is so embarrassing. Like, if I'm Mike Bloomberg, I'm hiding my face for sure. I'm not showing up at the future debates. That was just harsh. Like, it, it was almost cringeworthy. It was so embarrassing. And even though I loathe him, even though I think that billionaire shouldn't exist, you almost feel bad for him because he's just getting destroyed right there. But then you remember, oh yeah, this is a greedy oligarch who's literally ruining democracy, so you can't really feel bad for him. I don't know what to say. Mike Bloomberg obliterated absolutely curb stomped each candidate took turns dunking on him he was visibly uncomfortable there are moments where he was fidgety i mean i don't even know that i have the words to capture how poorly mike bloomberg did and it's so bad that i don't even think that the media can spin this like how are you going to spin this as a good performance how can you possibly say that mike bloomberg did a good job or even performed okay i mean this was awful for him this was embarrassing like i wouldn't be surprised if his numbers started to drop right after this debate that's how poorly he performed now i'm not going to say that like he's done but if he is done if his campaign is over it's this debate performance that did it and i mean you had how long to prepare for this you knew that all of these attacks would come out the candidates would bring them up if moderators didn't and they did and your responses were just it, it was laughable it was embarrassing absolutely embarrassing your response to sexual harassment lawsuits against you was to say well i have women that work for me and they have uh, pay equity unreal absolutely unreal so mike bloomberg performed so poorly that i had to create a special category for him so to recap in the winner category i've got Elizabeth Warren at the tippy top. I've got Bernie Sanders in second place, Joe Biden in a distant third, and then I have Pete Buttigieg in fourth, Amy Klobuchar in fifth, and Mike Bloomberg at one billion because that's how that's how bad he did. Like honestly, like if you haven't seen this debate again, I want to stress, watch it. Watch at least that first hour. Do yourself a favor. If you want to see a billionaire get dunked on. It's going to be glorious for you. Um, I think that Kyle Kalinske on Twitter described it as Bloomberg humiliation porn. And that is so accurate. And I saw a gif from Jurassic Park <laughs> that made me laugh about Mike Bloomberg entering the debate. <laughs> and then I saw even from Trevor Noah, who I think is a hack generally and not funny, claim that, you know, a billionaire hasn't had this bad of a night since Bruce Wayne's dad in that alley. It was bad. And I think that it's universally seen that Mike Bloomberg was the biggest loser, not even close. He lost this debate, and it might have tanked his entire campaign. All that money wasted, possibly, because of this debate. Now, getting to the specifics. When it comes to socialism, Bernie Sanders was absolutely 
dominant during this portion. So we have Lester Holt propose a poll and say, well, most people don't support socialism. And then Bernie's response was just incredible. He just stared at Lester and said, who's leading in that poll? Crushing that narrative, uh, responding to, you know, this anti-socialism bias that MSNBC clearly has, an anti-Sanders bias more specifically that MSNBC had, by saying we already have socialism for the rich in this country. As I alluded to earlier, he, he quoted uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was just absolutely incredible. Bernie Sanders, I think at this debate, perhaps more so than others, even though he's not the winner necessarily, demonstrated that if anyone is going to be able to take on Donald Trump, it's him. Possibly Elizabeth Warren, but nobody else can hold their own. Now, I think that Elizabeth Warren would lose to Donald Trump, but at this debate, at a really crucial time, she did demonstrate that she is a capable debater. Like, these last couple of debates, she's just been fading into the background, and uh, this time she came in guns blazing, and that's what she needed, so kudos to her. She uh, had a couple of cheap shots at Bernie Sanders uh, when the moderators decided to divert attention away from Bloomberg because everyone was dunking on him too much and tried to get people to attack Bernie Sanders because of his supporters. Elizabeth Warren joined in. But at the same time, I mean, Bernie Sanders held his own. I think that his responses were persuasive. Look, the black women on my campaign, Nina Turner, they get harassed all the time. So this isn't something that's unique to Bernie Sanders, in spite of what that little rat said on the debate stage. Pete Buttigieg literally tried to uh, say that Bernie supporters are uniquely evil. Okay, well, these uniquely evil Bernie bros aren't going to vote for you. So you better hope that you are successful in stealing the nomination, Pete, because you're not getting our vote. Now, uh, on that note of election theft, one of the most striking things in this debate, I think possibly the standout moment besides all the dunking on Bloomberg, was the fact that every single person on that stage, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, came out tonight against democracy. They revealed their inner authoritarian leanings. Because they all claimed that they would be open to stealing the nomination from someone, even if they have a plurality of delegates and the most votes. Even Elizabeth Warren said that. So we're going to dive into that a little bit deeper in a separate clip. But that honestly made me feel sick to my stomach. Because it showed the Democratic Party, they are frauds. And I don't think they really, like, they genuinely don't realize that if that happens... All fucking hell will break loose. Their party will be destroyed. Donald Trump gets a second term. Democracy will be dead. And the Democratic Party will go the way of the dodo. We'll just put it that way. So I'm going to hold my fire with regard to that story. Because that is... It's scandalous. Like, it should be an international story. The oldest democracy is now having people openly running for president saying that they'd be open to undermining the will of the people, using superdelegates to steal the nomination away from the person with the most votes. And this comes at a time when all of these dipshits have been railing against the Electoral College, claiming that the person with the most votes should be able to win. And now they're all saying, you know, since I'm probably not going to be able to get more delegates than Bernie, yeah, I'd be open to stealing it. Disgusting, even from Elizabeth Warren. If they think they can do that and go on to win... I don't care how much browbeating you do, Donald Trump gets a second term. It's basically guaranteed, and that's like the least that Democrats have to worry about because their party is just done at that point. But again, I don't want to speak too much about that because I have a separate segment for that. But um, <laughs> Democrats, they're playing with fire. Like, I can't stress that enough. But getting back to the overall debate, that's basically all that I want to say in my overall debate breakdown. Um, because I have more segments that I will plan on uh, putting up just about individual little instances here. 
And look, this debate was great. If you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you've already got the momentum going into this debate. And so what we needed was for Bernie Sanders to be able to maintain and show strength when he's tested. He did just that. He performed exceptionally well. Elizabeth Warren had the breakout performance. You can tell she really prepared and good on her. But the question I think that we have to ask ourselves after this debate is, can Mike Bloomberg survive this debate? I honestly believe it's an open question. And how will this debate impact Elizabeth Warren? I don't think that Joe Biden did enough to move the needle for him in Nevada. There's a poll that came out today that showed him and Bernie Sanders tied in South Carolina. Let me just explain. If Joe Biden loses South Carolina, his campaign can't survive. That is the firewall. He's been making everything on South Carolina. If he loses that, even if he ties, you can argue he's done. It can't happen. So I don't believe he did enough to move the needle, but I think his performance was okay. If Elizabeth Warren gets a boost, I will probably attribute it to this debate, but I just don't think that um, she's going to be able to do that. She's really far behind in Nevada. She could pull out of uh, you know a second place victory, possibly a victory if really her performance is viewed by voters as you know that great. But I think that Bernie Sanders' performance was so solid that if you were already supporting Bernie Sanders, you have no reason to jump ship. All the momentum is behind Bernie Sanders. He has the most persuasive argument, and when it comes to healthcare, he really like honed his craft. Like. All these Democrats are talking about how Bernie Sanders wants to take away health care, and Bernie Sanders is able to respond in such a persuasive way that it makes them seem like liars, and it's because they are lying, right? Nobody's wanting to take away health care. Bernie Sanders wants to expand health care to 100% of the population, and Pete Buttigieg's plan about choice, I mean, his plans would raise costs for people. Elizabeth Warren exposed that. So I think that Elizabeth Warren's debate strategy in basically trying to go after everyone else I think it worked for her because when you're behind, you have absolutely nothing to lose. So you might as well go guns blazing, Elizabeth Warren. She had to turn up, and I think that she did that. Um, but is it enough to, you know, uh, o overcome this gigantic behemoth in the race that is Bernie Sanders? I personally don't see it. I mean, Bernie Sanders has the entirety of the left coalescing behind him, and you see a lot of moderates now starting to break away from other candidates. And on to uh, Bernie Sanders. When you look at head-to-head -head matchups, Bernie versus Biden, Bernie versus Klobuchar, he's demolishing them. The only one who comes close is Elizabeth Warren. So the question is, did she peel off Bernie Sanders supporters? If any, it's not going to be enough, I don't think. But she did do a great job at this debate. Overall, her and Bernie emerged victorious, and Mike Bloomberg just had a horrible, horrible night. I said on Twitter that I know he's not accepting donations, but I would be willing to send him some ice because he is definitely going to need it after this debate. Ouch. So in my main post-debate breakdown, I talked about how excited I was about this debate. I thought it was really nice to see the candidates kind of team up to take on Mike Bloomberg, this billionaire oligarch who's trying to buy the election. Although one moment really stood out to me, and it was such a disgusting moment that it literally made me feel sick to my stomach. So Chuck Todd asked this question, and at first, you know, I was a little bit irritated that he asked this, but in the end, I'm glad he did. He asked whether or not the candidates would uh, be okay with the person who got the most delegates and votes 
winning the nomination or if, you know, maybe something else happens at that convention in the event it is a contested convention. And what you're going to see here is every single candidate on that stage, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, say that they are okay undermining the will of voters, having superdelegates just select someone else. Take a look. We are at the end here. I got to let that one go. We are, we, are not, we are less than two weeks away from a national primary. And I want to ask all of you this simple question. There's a very good chance none of you are going to have enough delegates to the Democratic National Convention to clinch this nomination. Okay? If that happens, I want all of your opinions on this. Should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? Senator Sanders, I'm going to let you go last here because I know your view on this. <laughs> so instead, I will start with you, Mayor Bloomberg. Whatever the rules of the Democratic Party are, they should be followed. And if they have a process, which I believe okay. they do, I'm trying to do so this that everybody else, fast. everybody can do. Can, so you can, want the convention to work its will? Yes. Senator Warren. But a convention working its will means that people have the delegates that are pledged to them and they keep those delegates until so the leading you come person? to the convention. No? All okay. of All righty. Vice President Biden. Play by the rules. Yes or no? Leading person with the delegates. Should they be the nominee or not? No. Let the process work its way out. Mayor Buttigieg? Not necessarily. Not to listen. Senator to Klobuchar? Let the process work. Senator Sanders? Well, the process includes 500 superdelegates on the second ballot. So I think All that right. the will of the people should okay. prevail. Yes. Right. Thank you, guys. Most votes should become the nominee. Five no's and a yes. Yikes. Bernie Sanders said it simply. The person with the most votes should be the nominee. So... Everyone likes to claim that Bernie Sanders is polarizing, he's not a Democrat, and he's a socialist, but he's the only one on that stage who is a true Democrat, small d Democrat, in that he believes in democracy. The person who gets the most votes wins. And I thought that everyone else in the Democratic Party believed that as well, because after the election when Hillary Clinton lost, even though she won the popular vote, we heard the Democratic Party screeching at the top of their lungs about how we should abolish the Electoral College and respect the will of voters. And I agree with them. But now, all of a sudden, if it might benefit them politically, they're okay using all of their delegates, pulling delegates, to make sure that Bernie Sanders, if this happens, you know, with the most delegates, loses. Even if he got the most votes. Even Elizabeth Warren said that this is absolutely morally reprehensible and i i just i can't stress this enough if this happens if bernie sanders goes into that convention with a plurality of delegates and the most votes and he does not walk out as the nominee it's not as simple as donald trump winning and being reelected because that is a certainty at that point but the democratic party will be destroyed and i've talked about this before as well this party could not possibly withstand that. They couldn't withstand that. And anyone who's openly suggesting that this should happen, or maybe, you know, they would be willing to do that, they have to admit they're okay with Donald Trump getting a second term. Because even if in D.C., in these elitist mainstream media, corporate Democrat bubbles, they would love to see the nomination be stolen from Bernie Sanders. If you honestly believe you're going to be able to win against Donald Trump after you just stole the nomination in front of all of our eyes? 
Not happening. You're done. I mean, they had plausible deniability in 2016 when they rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders because this wasn't necessarily something that was very obvious. Sure, people commented on the lack of debates, but nobody really saw the intricacies. Not very many people who are just regular, non-savvy political consumers saw, you know, what Donna Brazil said about the joint fundraising agreement that the DNC signed between Hillary Clinton and the DNC before she even secured the nomination. So nobody knows about that. But if you do this in the open, if you disrespect voters that much, you can't survive this election. So losing this election is the least of your concerns. Trying to put together the pieces of the Democratic Party after you just blow it to shreds, that's going to be your task. And I honestly don't know that the Democratic Party would be able to survive this. You'll have Two generations, millennials and Zoomers, check out of politics permanently. Say, you know what, I'm done with electoral politics because if this is what happens, if I vote and my vote doesn't matter, why participate? That's what's going to happen. Like, they don't realize they will blackpill two generations, perhaps Gen X as well, some boomers, I imagine, if they do this. And they do this knowing the consequences, but they believe, honestly, that... Beating Bernie Sanders is a greater priority than Donald Trump because they can't be naive enough to think that they can steal the nomination away from Bernie and still beat Trump. No, they know they lose. That's that's a guarantee. That is a guarantee they lose. But if they honestly think that they're still going to have a party after this, no. If they don't think that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people would take to the streets and protest this election theft that's brazen after this party cried about Russia for three years? I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say, right? And what's interesting is that in mainstream media, we have pundits openly not just talking about this casually and not, you know, uh, denouncing the prospect of election theft at a contested convention, but you have Dr. Jason Johnson on MSNBC say, I hope there's a contested convention. I want to see that happen. I want to see that scenario. And at this point, you might as well just admit that you want Donald Trump to get a second term. But nonetheless, this is what Dr. Jason Johnson said. I want to see a contested convention, not just because it'll be interesting to see, and I'm a political scientist, but because it'll be the one test that we actually need for Bernie Sanders. For all the noise that he's making, I want to see, because someone actually started asking him about this tonight. Mike Bloomberg talked about it, some of the questions about it, how his staff behaves how his supporters behave, how they've treated the culinary unit, how they treated the Working Families Party. I want to see Bernie Sanders and his great and wonderful revolution go into a contested convention and try and wrangle those people when he's got to get a 44-year-old superdelegate from central Illinois to go to his side. I want to see him have to sit in a room with Elizabeth Warren, who he called a liar on a national stage a couple of weeks ago and say, hey, could you please release some of your delegates to me? That's what will prove whether or not his revolution actually works. He needs to go to a contested convention because if he can't do that, there then the democrats should have another candidate to take that moniker and go against donald trump this is a conversation that took place on national television so they're trying to normalize people basically get their feet warm dip it in the water just a little bit so it's not shocking if they're successful at stealing the nomination from bernie sanders i promise you if you do this there will be hell to pay. So what we have to do as Bernie Sanders supporters and just supporters of democracy in general is make sure that if you want to defeat Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders gets a majority of delegates on that first round. Otherwise, we've gotten a lot of indications that superdelegates are just going to outright steal it and everyone, including Elizabeth Warren, is a-okay with that. Now, according to 538's projections, there's a 41% chance that Bernie Sanders does get a majority. 
but we can't risk it. That isn't a high enough chance. If he doesn't get a majority, or at least close to a majority, be prepared. They may actually try to steal this from Bernie Sanders, and the only way to stop them from doing that is if on that first round, he's able to secure the nomination. But the fact that we're even really entertaining this as a possibility, it really speaks to how far we've fallen as a country and how far the Democratic Party has fallen as an institution. Because this is a party that literally has democracy in its name, right? They talk about voter suppression and how voter, I voter ID laws, uh, they disenfranchise mostly people of color. And they're right to talk about that. They're right to talk about how gerrymandering helps a lot of Republicans. It helps them, certainly, but it allows individuals to redraw districts to secure their election, you know, for years to come. And they're right. But if they do this, if they're that brazen to where in front of everyone, the entire country's watching, and they steal a nomination away from the candidate with the most votes, they're done. The Democratic Party will go the way of the dodo. I can promise you, they will never get my vote ever again and i'm not the only one and like you don't have to just be worried about someone like me who's this angry bernie bro that a lot of them would say um because it's just normal people who wouldn't go for that as well like if it were the case that joe biden were able to get more pledged delegates than bernie sanders if he won a plurality i would be incredibly demoralized i would be so frustrated but i wouldn't support some type of mechanism or contested convention where they just steal it away from joe biden and give it to amy klobuchar or even give it to bernie sanders because if you believe in democracy then you have to be as principled as you possibly can be otherwise it doesn't work it doesn't work that's what you need for democracy because if you don't respect democracy and the will of the people then it's delegitimized and when a democracy becomes illegitimate that democracy falls into authoritarianism and we are already gradually devolving into an oligarchy Voters are having less and less of a say in who gets elected because money determines who wins. Voters have basically a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, according to a Princeton University study. The situation is dire. Like, I need you to understand, democracies, they don't last forever. And our democracy is hanging on by a thread. And if Democrats honestly believe that they can still survive as a party after brazenly stealing this election from bernie sanders that is not going to be the case i promise you so shame on every single fraud on that stage who just revealed to everyone that they have authoritarian instincts they don't actually care about democracy they don't care about winning over voters if they think there's some type of sleazy maneuver that they can do to steal the nomination away from bernie sanders in hopes that one of them can secure the nomination if they think they're going to take on Donald Trump, they've got another thing coming. So if they truly are serious about defeating Donald Trump, don't fuck with us. Respect the will of voters. And I shouldn't honestly be having to say this. Like, I shouldn't have to tell people in the Democratic Party to respect the will of voters because democracy is literally in their name. But this is the situation where we find ourselves in. You know, the powers that be, the financial interests that control the Democratic Party and all of those puppets up on the stage... They're not going to just roll over and die. They're going to do whatever they can to win. And if that includes cheating Bernie Sanders brazenly and committing theft of an election, they're going to do that too. So we have to do what we need to to make sure Bernie Sanders gets that majority. Otherwise, we're going into this convention 
And we're on shaky ground, even if Bernie Sanders is able to get the most votes. And it shouldn't even be something that we have to entertain. But in this day and age, the Democratic Party and all of its politicians, including Elizabeth Warren, is so morally bankrupt that they're okay with stealing an election from um, all of us. Unbelievable. So if you didn't tune into last night's debate, let me just say it was an absolute bloodbath. And one person was a definitive, universally recognized loser. And that person is Mike Bloomberg. And the way that you know that he is a loser is if there's no way for the mainstream media to spin it. And I watched a little bit of MSNBC, something that nobody should ever do. And even they were saying that Mike Bloomberg was the loser. So you can't possibly spin this. You can't suggest that he came out on top. This was a bad, bad, brutal debate for Mike Bloomberg. Uh, because not only did he have to defend himself when it comes to stop and frisk, he had to defend himself when it comes to redlining, sexual harassment, why he hasn't released his tax returns, why he has all of this wealth and whether or not it's earned and deserved. And it was so bad that after the debate, his Wikipedia page was updated and it claims that he was murdered <laughs> by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. And guys, <laughs> he lost so bad, his campaign put out a statement. You don't do that unless you got blown the fuck out. And it reads, Mike was just warming up tonight. We fully expect Mike will continue to build on tonight's performance when he appears on the stage in South Carolina next Tuesday. Yeah, you better hope so, because if he has more performances like that, it doesn't matter how much money you spend. You can spend $10 billion of your own wealth, but that kind of a performance shows voters not only are you incompetent and you have zero charisma, but if you go up against Donald Trump... He's going to have a field day. Like, he's going to enjoy it. Like, what he did to Hillary Clinton on that debate stage um, in bringing on Bill Clinton's uh, sexual assault accusers and calling out Hillary Clinton's record on trade, you know, basically trying to attack her from the left. Imagine what he can do with Mike Bloomberg. There's no way he'd be able to maintain any lead that he has currently over Donald Trump on a national debate stage. Like, this shows voters this dude is a loser and he can't hold his own. So we're going to go through a couple of clips here, and I'm going to show you how one by one Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, even Amy Klobuchar took turns dunking on Mayor Bloomberg. And the only person who really withheld their fire was Pete Buttigieg. I mean, he threw in a couple of jabs here and there, but it's clear that this, you know, opportunist is jockeying for a position in Bloomberg's administration, possibly, or a VP position, and, you know, whatever. But the people who took shots at him, they got in some really good blows, and they landed. And the first one is Bernie Sanders. He explained why Bloomberg is poised to lose to Donald Trump if he were to win the nomination. In order to beat Donald Trump, we're going to need the largest voter turnout in the history of the United States. Uh, Mr. Bloomberg had policies in New York City of stop and frisk, which went after African-American and Latino people in an outrageous way. That is not a way you're going to grow voter turnout. What our movement is about is bringing working class people together, black and white and Latino, Native American, Asian American, around an agenda that works for all of us and not just the billionaire class. And that agenda says that maybe, just maybe, 
We should join the rest of the industrialized world, guarantee health care to all people as a human right, raise that minimum wage to a living wage of 15 bucks an hour, and have the guts to take on the fossil fuel industry because their short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet and the need to combat climate change. Those are some of the reasons we have the strongest campaign to defeat Donald Trump. And that is such a great point. If you want to win, you have to increase voter turnout. If you don't recognize that, you can't beat Donald Trump because Democrats for too long have just been fixated on winning over moderate Republicans and these suburban white voters. But listen... It's not just this fixed portion of the electorate that will vote in every single election. See, when turnout is high, Democrats win. When it's low, they lose. Hillary Clinton lost because she couldn't excite younger people. Individuals stood home, and a lot of people did flip from Democrats to Republicans to support Donald Trump. But I mean, if you want to win, the best way, the safest bet is to turn out the base. And how are you going to turn out the base? How are you going to energize black and brown people if you were the mayor who had this explicitly racist policy where you threw black people against the wall and frisked them? Like, there's a video from the New York times with an individual named taekwon and he explained how he was stopped four to five times per month during the stop and frisk years four to five times per month you can't win with that kind of a record people of color will not come out and vote for you people who are anti-racist who don't believe in your disgusting discriminatory policies will not come out and vote for you and when it comes to the issue of racial profiling they actually stayed on this for a while i'm shocked that msnbc actually talked about the audio that benjamin dixon released um or at least popularized where he explained how look we have to over police black neighborhoods because that's where all the crime is like i'm genuinely surprised that the media did their job in that respect but uh joe biden jumped in and explained how racial profiling that we saw from mike bloomberg it really is disgusting it's evil the mayor makes an interesting point the mayor says that he has a great record that he's done these wonderful things well the fact that fact the fact of the matter is he has not managed his city very very well when he was there he didn't get a whole lot done he had stop and frisk throwing a folk close to five million young black men up against the wall and when we came along in our administration the president obama and said we're going to send in a moderator to a mediator to stop it he said that's unnecessary so i we're going to get a chance to talk about the mayor's record but in terms of who is best prepared to beat donald trump look at your poll and what it says now what bloomberg tried to do was feign ignorance here he tried to make it seem as if you know he didn't really know about what stop and frisk was doing how he had the nypd basically terrorizing communities of color but that's a lie that is a complete lie He knew what was happening, and he refused to end stop and frisk until, I believe, a judge ordered him to. Now, Elizabeth Warren actually got him there on that lie and claimed, no, you knew exactly what this was. Targeting black and brown people wasn't some type of unintended consequence. That was exactly what you wanted to do as the mayor of New York City. So he really tried to wiggle out of the corner that he was backed into and none of the Democrats were having it. Nobody would let him out. And there was a moment where, uh, moving on a little bit, where Mike Bloomberg was asked whether or not he deserved or earned the money that he has. He's worth over $50 billion. 
And Bernie Sanders had just the perfect response to what he said because he answered, yes, I did earn that. But look what Bernie Sanders said in response. You know what, Mr. Bloomberg, wasn't you who made all that money. Maybe your workers played some role in that as well. That was just brilliant. Um, and it communicates to people that Bernie Sanders knows about the value of just normal workers. We take for granted the people who work at Walmart. We take for granted just the people who are working these nine to five jobs and they haven't seen a raise. They're struggling to get by. They can barely pay their rent. And Bernie Sanders is demonstrating that he's in touch with what Americans need, not some oligarch who's buying ads, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars worth. That's just disgusting. So I love how each candidate took turns dunking on him, but I've got to hand it to Elizabeth Warren. It was really her who landed the knockout punch because what we saw here was just, it was masterful. And I think that if you are ever going to be in a debate, you have to watch this performance. Watch what Elizabeth Warren did and pay close attention because this is how you expose someone who is a fraud. This is what she did when it comes to the sexual harassment allegations that came up to Mike Bloomberg. Several former employees have claimed that your company was a hostile workplace for women. When you were confronted about it, you admitted making sexually suggestive remarks, saying, quote, that's the way I grew up. In a lawsuit in the 1990s, according to the Washington Post, one former female employee alleged that you said, quote, I would do you in a second. Should Democrats expect better from their nominee? Let me let me say a couple things and have, if I can have my full minute and a, qu a quarter. Thank you. Um, I have no tolerance for the kind of behavior that the Me Too movement, movement has exposed. And anybody that does anything wrong in our company, we investigate it. And if it's appropriate, they're gone that day. But let me tell you what I do in my company and my foundation and in city government when I was there. In my foundation, the person that runs it's a woman. 70% of the people there are women. <clears throat> in my company, lots and lots of women have big responsibilities. They get paid exactly the same as men. And in my um, uh, in City Hall, the person that's the top person, my deputy mayor, was a woman, and 40% of our commissioners were women. I am very proud of the fact that th about uh, two weeks ago, we were awarded, uh, we were voted the uh, most the, the best place to work, second best place in America. <laughs> if that doesn't say something about our employees and how happy they are, I don't know what does. Senator Warren, you've been critical of Mayor Bloomberg on this issue. Yes, I have. And I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. That just doesn't cut it. The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many Let is that? Let me finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's a be, agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet. 
and that's up to them. They sign those agreements, so, and we'll live with it. So wait, when you say it is up to, I just want to be clear. Some is how many? And, and, when you, and when you say they signed them and they wanted them, if they wish now to speak out and tell their side of the story about what it is they allege, that's now okay with you? You're releasing them on television tonight? Se- Senator, no. Is that right? Senator, tonight? Senator, the company and somebody else, in this case, a man or a woman, or could be more than that, they decided when they made an agreement that they wanted to keep it quiet for everybody's no. interest. They signed the agreements, and that's what we're going to live I, with. I'm sorry. No, the question is, are I the women bound by being muzzled by you? And you could release them from that immediately, because understand, this is not just a question of the mayor's character. This is also a question about electability. We are not going to beat Donald Trump with a man who has who knows how many non-disclosure agreements and the drip, drip, drip of stories of women saying they have been harassed and discriminated against. That's not what we do as Democrats. Now, you can see that he was visibly uncomfortable because there was no way that he could respond to not look like a horrible human being right there. She had him backed into a corner. And as I'm watching this, you know, I'm loving and I, I like that she's dunking on Mike Bloomberg. But the question is, Where was this Elizabeth Warren at the last three or four debates? Like, if we saw this, there's no way that she would be in the position that she's in currently in this overall race where she has a 1 in 100 chance of getting a majority of pledged delegates and winning the nomination. That's according to 538. So, I mean, if she brought this heat at previous debates and didn't kind of just, like, fade into the background... She would be excelling right now. But I mean, getting back to Mike Bloomberg, that was just embarrassing. And I mentioned this in my main debate breakdown video, but I don't know who it was, if it was a journalist or whatnot on Twitter, who basically said that they were at an official Bloomberg campaign debate watching party, and there were like visible groans, and they really didn't like what was happening because Elizabeth Warren, you know, was kind of destroying him there. How do you respond? There's no way to respond, right? There's just no way to respond to that. Everything she said there was just perfection. And I think that she probably prepared so much that she even anticipated responses and knew exactly what to say to hit him and thought through different scenarios of how he might answer this. And I mean, how can the question is after seeing all of this, how can you still support Mike Bloomberg if you were backing him because of name recognition based off of those ads? The answer is, I don't think you can. And look, even Amy Klobuchar dunked on Mike Bloomberg when the issue of why he hasn't released his tax returns came up. And I, I thought that she handled this phenomenally. It just takes us a long time. Unfortunately or fortunately, oh, can I comment on that? Fortunately, I, I make a lot of money. And we do business all around the world, and we are preparing it. The, the, the number of pages will probably be in the thousands of pages. I can't go to TurboTax. But I put out my tax return every year for 12 years in City Hall. We will put out this one. It says, tells everybody everything they need to know about every investments that I make and where the money goes. And the biggest item is all the money I give away. And we list that, every single donation I make. And you can get that from our from our foundation anytime you want. Okay, yeah, I'm just looking at my husband in the front row that has to, like, do our taxes all the time. Um, We probably could go to TurboTax. And the point of this is I believe in transparency. I had a physical, by the way. It came out 
well, we might all be surprised if my blood pressure is lower than Mayor Pete's. That might really shock everyone out there. Um, and I think you should release your records uh, from your physical. Secondly, when it comes to tax returns, everyone up here has released their tax returns, Mayor. I think, and it is a major issue because the President of the United States has been hiding behind his tax returns, even when courts order them, him to come forward with those tax returns. And I, I think, I don't care how much money anyone has. I think it's great you got a lot of money, but I think you've got to come forward with your tax returns. So I don't usually say this, but good job, Amy Klobuchar. Now, now in case you missed it, um, he basically said that he's too rich to use TurboTax. Okay. And on top of that, he says that the biggest item in his taxes is all the money he gives away. So he's trying to cultivate goodwill with viewers, except save it. You're not using that money for causes because you have this altruistic belief that, you know, your money can make the world a better place. You're buying influence. You're buying endorsements. You're buying television advertisements. So save it. I don't care about your philanthropic endeavors. I couldn't care less. Okay. So the fact that you haven't released your tax returns yet when you knew you'd be running, it is a little embarrassing. And look, I don't necessarily care that much about tax returns. I think that his support for redlining, his lack of support for the minimum wage, which Bernie called out, uh, you know, his stop and frisk, his sexual harassment, that's all more persuasive. But I think that this is important in tying him to Donald Trump because he's trying to position himself as the person who is poised to beat Donald Trump. But what this portion of the debate proved was that how he's going to beat Donald Trump when he's very Trumpian himself. He's a billionaire. They both haven't released their tax returns. I thought it was great. It's it's a good strategic move. And um, yeah, so I don't know what to say. If I'm Mike Bloomberg, I'm never showing up to a debate again. I'm bowing out of this race. That was too embarrassing. Just save face, drop out, leave your legacy intact, although I don't know that that's possible after you've been exposed over the course of the last week. But I mean, within the first couple of minutes, he was already dead and they kept beating his dead carcass on that debate stage and it was just so glorious to watch. Like, this is really what we needed. We needed all of the candidates to take turns dunking on this oligarch because shame on anyone who thinks that they can buy their way into the White House, that they can buy our democracy. It's just... It's grotesque. It's morally reprehensible. Like, if you truly want to live in a democracy, then you can't allow billionaires to do what Mike Bloomberg is doing. He's buying endorsements. He's buying democracy. He's buying television ads. It's just, it's disgusting. Who can compete with that? What normal working class American who wants to be president can compete with a billionaire oligarch like that? And if he's able to prove that this is a succe successful strategy, then who who's going to run next? Is it going to be Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or someone from the Walton family? Leon Cooperman, we can't allow this to happen. And so that's why the candidates needed to dismantle his campaign. And I think that they did as good as they possibly could have tonight. And let me say this, my expectations for Mike Bloomberg were very low, but he even underperformed my expectations. Like he did worse than I thought he possibly could have done. And even with my low expectations, regardless, I was still shocked at how bad this debate was for him. Horrible. Zero charisma, no policy substance. He's only on that debate stage because he thinks he's entitled to the White House because he has lots and lots of money. And this debate showed that you can't necessarily buy an election so easily, or at least if you're going to try to, there's going to be some heavy pushback. So kudos to all the candidates who took on this oligarch. So one thing that I will say about last night's debate is that 
Pete Buttigieg did not have a very good night. And I say that not because I think that he face-planted, but because he needed a really strong, solid showing in order to hopefully overperform the polls in Nevada. He needed to communicate to communities of color that he's sensitive to their needs. He needed to demonstrate to voters that he's not this vapid corporate talking point, thumb-pointing machine and he didn't do that. And one thing that's also clear is that the other candidates increasingly, namely Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, uh, are fed up with Pete Buttigieg. And he's just, there's something about him that listening to him speak, like I have this visceral reaction. He just gets on my nerves in a way that no other politician ever has. And I think it's because he's just so fake. Everything is scripted, focus group driven. And he's just a smug little elitist shithead. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. And even though ideologically speaking, for what policies we know Pete Buttigieg supports, I think that I'd probably prefer Biden to him at this point because Pete Buttigieg is just, he's so, he's so hollow. Like he stands for nothing and he is willing to take on whatever policy. He'd become a Republican like that if it means he'd be able to get power. So, I mean, I just, I can't stand him. And I think that that's the sentiment for most normal people, and I try to ask individuals in my social circle who aren't as, you know, online as I am, who don't follow politics as closely, about what they feel about Pete Buttigieg, and I kind of see the same thing. They're like, uh, they, there's just something about him that turns people off, and I think it's because he's so fucking fake. Now, he decided to be incredibly aggressive. He went after Bernie Sanders more than he usually does tonight, and all throughout the debate, as people are on that stage, dunking on Mike Bloomberg, you have Pete Buttigieg's team putting out tweets about Bernie Sanders, attacking Bernie Sanders. And what he did on this stage was just disgusting. He basically equated Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg and made it seem as if they're equally evil, albeit for different reasons. But what I loved is that Bernie Sanders put him in his place and it was so great to watch. We could wake up two weeks from today, the day after Super Tuesday, and the only candidates left standing will be Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, the two most polarizing figures on this stage. And most Americans don't see where they fit if they've got to choose between a socialist who thinks that capitalism is the root of all evil and a billionaire who thinks that money ought to be the, the root of all power. Let's put forward somebody who actually lives and works in a middle-class neighborhood in an industrial Midwestern city. Let's put forward somebody who's actually a Democrat. Look. <laughs> we shouldn't have to choose between one candidate who wants to burn this party down and another candidate who wants to buy this party out. Look, we can do better. Senator, Senator Sanders, you know, are you polarizing? If speaking to the needs and the pain of a long-neglected working class is polarizing, I think you got the wrong word. What we are trying finally to do is to give a voice to people who, after 45 years of work, are not making a nickel more than they did 45 years ago. We are giving a voice to people who are saying we are sick and tired of billionaires like Mr. Bloomberg seeing huge expansions of their wealth while a half a million people sleep out on the street tonight. And that's so what we are saying, Pete, is maybe it's a time for the working class of this country to have a little bit of power in Washington rather than your billionaire campaign contributors. Hey, uh, all right, look, first of all, I know. 
My campaign is fueled by hundreds of thousands of contributors. Including 26 billionaires. Among the hundreds of thousands of contributors. And look, we've got to unite this country to deal with these issues. You're not the only one who cares about the working class. Most Americans believe we need to empower workers. As a matter of fact, you're the one who is at war with the culinary union right here in Las Vegas. support than you have ever dreamed of. We, can, we have the support of unions all across this Yeah, country. but the vision I'm putting forward has the support of the American people. Really? We can actually deliver health care without taking it away from anyone. We can actually empower workers and lift wages without further polarizing this country. And we can build a movement without having legions of our supporters online and in person. Yeah, so you're going to get some extra rat emojis for that last comment, you smug little rat-faced fucker. This guy is just, he's insufferable. And that line about how we shouldn't have to choose between a candidate who wants to burn this party down and a candidate who wants to buy the party out. He was so proud of that line that immediately after he said it, his campaign tweeted out an image of his face with that quote. Brilliant. So brilliant. Bernie wants to burn the party down so much that he's running to be the nominee and that he's literally part of Senate Democratic Party leadership. Like, who do you think you are? Like, you have the most popular politician in America and you're accusing him of being equally as bad as a billionaire oligarch who's racist, transphobic, sexist. Like, that's, that's disgusting. That's morally reprehensible and it's so disingenuous that people are going to see that you're just attacking Bernie Sanders, not because there's this ideological disagreement between you and him, but because you're you're an opportunist. You just want to take down Bernie because you know he's a threat. He's a threat. He said it on stage. He knows that it could be Mike Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders remaining after Super Tuesday. So do we really want that to be the case? Um, I don't want Mike Bloomberg to be the last one standing, but if we truly want to beat Donald Trump, don't you think that the most popular politician in America who uh, you once claimed had courage, should be the nominee? Someone who can excite young voters? I mean, I'm actually surprised that he was asked during this debate if he's out of touch with his own generation, and the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because he doesn't represent what young people want. He is painfully out of touch, and if he were the nominee, he would get so thoroughly destroyed by Donald Trump, it wouldn't even be funny. But everything he said about Bernie, I think that Bernie Sanders rebutted with the perfect response. So Bernie Sanders um, said, what we're saying, Pete, is maybe it's time for the working class of this country to have a little bit more power in Washington rather than your billionaire campaign contributors. That was such a good burn, and that's going to land with people, because guess what? Most Americans believe that there's too much money in politics. They believe that rich people and elites have too much influence on our elections. So every time Bernie Sanders calls that out, you have less and less legitimacy. So if you want to step to Bernie Sanders, be prepared because you're going to get punched, metaphorically, of course. Now, Buttigieg responded by saying our campaign is fueled by hundreds of thousands of contributors. And Bernie chimed in and said, including 46 billionaires. So good. So Good. Now, he also attacked Bernie Sanders because his supporters allegedly attacked the culinary union. Now, I've talked about this on the show. I don't know what attacks they're talking about. Is it mean tweets? I don't know. Because I'm a very online person, so if the culinary union put out some type of anti-Medicare for All statement, I would have seen it likely and pushed back. But they just claimed out of nowhere that Sanders supporters are harassing them. 
Okay, well, if they're literally harassing you and doxing your members, then I absolutely unequivocally condemn that. But I have my doubts because it seems like when everyone in mainstream media and other Democrats are just suddenly condemning Bernie bros, it just seems a little fake. It seems like it's a narrative. It seems like it's a coordinated attack to take down the frontrunners. So, you know, call me crazy, call me conspiratorial, but I'm not buying this bullshit narrative. But when Pete Buttigieg claimed that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters attacked members of the Culinary Union, Bernie Sanders responded by saying, I've got more union support than you've ever dreamed of. Boom. Because guess what? Bernie has labor on his side. And you have a lot of opportunists in this race, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg, who are trying to jump on this issue to not just demonize Bernie Sanders, but to make it seem as if they care about labor, right? They care about unions, they care about workers. But that's false. Not a single union has endorsed Mayor Pete's Medicare for All Who Wanted in spite of the fact that he claimed that it has majority support. No, it doesn't have majority support. Medicare for All does. Has there been a single poll done asking voters about whether or not they favor Medicare for All Who Wanted? Unless he's suggesting, you know, public option, but we want Medicare for All. So you're a liar, and he keeps lying, and the other Democrats do that, uh, that too. Um, and we're going to get to healthcare, but I'm kind of circling around to it. And he lies about how Medicare for All will take away insurance. That is literally a lie because you're getting insurance. Like if you have insurance now, it will be replaced. You're not losing something. But for him to say this, it's just a bold-faced lie. And this is why people don't like Mayor Pete. This is why millennials and Zoomers don't like Mayor Pete. It's because they see right through him. He stands for nothing, and he's just trying to win by all means necessary, even if it means demonizing someone who he, you know, said he supported. Now, when it comes to the issue of healthcare, I do have a clip for you, because I've been saying for literally months now that when it comes to this portion of the debate, even though Bernie Sanders, I think, has already persuaded Americans that Medicare for All is the way to go, he's really, you know, honed in on what he needs to say to convince people, one thing that's lacking, and it's severely lacking, is that Bernie Sanders never ties the uh, the industry, the private health insurance industry and big pharma and the contributions that they've given to the candidates on that stage. So if you explain why Pete Buttigieg is saying, I don't support Medicare for all any longer, now I support Medicare for all who want it, and you explain that he's been bought off, that is going to be a powerful, powerful statement, and it will register with every single voter, and the rat will be exposed. Well, guess what? Bernie Sanders did that tonight, and it was glorious. Somehow or another, Canada can provide universal health care to all their people, half the cost. UK can do it, France can do it, Germany can do it, all of Europe can do it. Gee whiz, somehow or another, we are the only major country on earth that can't do it. Why is that? And I'll tell you why. It's because last year the healthcare industry made $100 billion in profits. Pharmaceutical industry, top six companies, $69 billion in profit. And those CEOs are contributing to Pete's campaign and other campaigns All up right. here. Let's clear this so up. So maybe, right maybe it is finally time that we said as a nation, enough is enough. 
The function of a rational health care system is not to make the pharmaceutical industry and the drug companies rich. It is to provide health care to all people as a human right, Mr. not a privilege, Mr. Vice no premiums, no, co-payments, Mr. Vice no deductibles. Let's go ahead. That is how you do it. Whenever we have this conversation, I think that Bernie Sanders has already said everything that he needs to say, and he's been so effective at, you know, fighting through the corporate propaganda, these lies about people losing their insurance and it costing a hundred trillion dollars, like all this bullshit. This is what's missing. This is what was missing. And now you have to say this every single time, but be more specific next time. A little bit of constructive criticism. Bring up the specific contributions. Bring up how these, you know, uh, billionaires in the health insurance industry are directly financing, name them, name Aetna, name Cigna, name their contributors, because that is how voters are going to see why they're saying the way, the things that they're saying about Medicare for All, why Pete is specifically, but this includes Amy and um, uh, Joe Biden as well, because we have private health insurance now. Like, we don't like it. We hate it, in fact. We hate it. And, you know, you can't just keep talking at us saying how much we love our private health insurance plans when it's costing us tens of thousands every single year when we can't even use it like me because it's so fucking expensive. I don't know what my deductible is. It's like 6500 Can't use that, okay? So, um, yeah, this is what you need to do. And I, I just love this because Bernie Sanders, during this debate, he trapped a rat and it was what we all wanted to see. And Frankly, what we needed to see after weeks of this smug little fucker claiming that, you know, polls show he's the best to take on Donald Trump, that he won Iowa. No, fuck you. You're a fraud. Go away forever. But unfortunately, after 2020, I'm sure he'll be back. I'm sure that, you know, in 2024 or 2028, he'll run again and that the Democratic Party establishment will, you know, never cease to shove him down our throats. But if we are loud enough in saying, fuck off Pete Buttigieg, maybe, just maybe there's a chance that he'll go away, but uh, who knows. So at every single Democratic Party debate, there's a moment where Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, they kind of go back and forth and they attack one another. And at that last debate, Amy Klobuchar kind of bodied Pete Buttigieg. And this time, he tried to pay her back. And you can just see it on Amy's face. She was done with Pete Buttigieg. And I think that all of us are just irritated with him and fed up at this point because he's so fake. He represents nothing. He's willing to say and do anything to get elected. And I, I like, we're sick of it. So Amy Klobuchar, like she really is all of us in this clip that I'm about to show you because she is tired of Pete Buttigieg's bullshit. So for whatever reason, he decided to jump in in that moment where she was asked about, you know, forgetting the Mexican president's name. Um, and she was not happy with that. Take a look. You're staking your candidacy on your Washington experience. You're on the committee that oversees border security. You're on the committee that does trade. You're literally in uh, part of the committee that's overseeing these things. And we're not able to speak to literally the first thing about the politics of the country you, to ourselves. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? I'm I saying that you shouldn't trivialize that I made that an error. People sometimes forget names. I am the one that has, number one, has the experience based on passing over 100 bills. If I could respond, this was a pretty big Quickly, allegation. Please. He's basically saying that I don't have the experience to be president of the United States. 
I have passed over 100 bills as a lead Democrat since being in the U.S. Senate. I am the one, not you, that has won statewide in congressional district after congressional district. And I will say, when you tried in Indiana, Pete, to run, what happened to you? You lost by over 20 points to someone who later lost to my friend Joe Donnelly. So don't tell me about experience. What unites us here is we want to win. Right. And I think we should put a proven winner in charge of the ticket. This is a race for This is a race for president. If winning a race for Senate in Minnesota translated directly to becoming president, I would have grown up under the presidency of Walter Mondale. This is different. And the reason that I think we need to talk about Washington experience is uh, that we should ask what that experience has led to. Experience is, and certainly tenure is not always the same thing as judgment. We're going to talk about uh, votes okay, in the Senate in know, Washington. Let's, let's talk, talk about, about it. it. Uh, let's okay. talk about uh, the major sorry, policies. Yeah, next question. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? That was tense. <laughs> that was tense and I would not want to be one of Amy's staffers uh, after that debate. Yikes. Um, now, look, I'll, I'll say this. I don't believe that she forgot the Mexican president's name. She could have just said AMLO, but like... I don't think this is disqualifying. This isn't the biggest deal ever. Sure, it's, you know, a rookie mistake. It kind of shows oh, you haven't done your research, especially when you're being interviewed by Telemundo and you have our southern neighbor who they're probably going to ask you about because we're going into the Nevada caucus and you're going to need to demonstrate that you know about, you know, Mexico and the United States' relationship. We're at a minimum, you know, just you've done a little bit of research, um, quick Google search, but um it's still not disqualifying, and the way that Pete Buttigieg hammered her, like, you could tell she was really not having it. And um, before I get to my next clip, I just gotta play this, because <laughs> Pete Buttigieg started to speak Spanish, and her response... It was just, it was literally perfect. I wish everyone is, was as perfect as you, Pete. I love it. <laughs> um, Amy Klobuchar, you know, she has that inner Karen, and if she just unleashed that Karen at every single debate, she would be unstoppable. Because we're all Karens when we hear people to judge. I have the urge to speak to his manager and, you know, get someone to tell him to shut the fuck up because he's just, he's, he's just grating on my fucking nerves. And I just, like, I don't have this reaction usually to people um, because, like, I, I, like I'm self-aware, right? I know that my voice is relatively annoying and nasally. Like, we all know that we're not perfect, but there's something, like, about Pete Buttigieg that's so special, and I think it really stems from his fakeness, but for Amy Klobuchar to really, like, be visibly frustrated, like, even though Pete Buttigieg isn't necessarily wrong, I'm still kind of vibing with Amy Klobuchar, because it's just, like, you want to tell him to shut the fuck up, and in this next clip, like, if she had a binder on that podium, she would have thrown it at his fucking face, literally, because there were times where it looked like she was going to physically assault him, like slap him. And the clip that I have doesn't necessarily demonstrate that because as he's talking, you can kind of see her getting more and more anger, uh, angry. But in this clip, it does show how, you know, she she's just, she's all of us. She's fed up with him. 
Thank you. If you're going to run based on your record of voting in Washington, then you have to own those votes, especially when it comes to immigration. You voted to confirm the head of Customs and Border Protection under Trump, who was one of the architects of the family separation policy. You voted to make English the national language. Do you know the message that sends in as multilingual a state as Nevada to immigrants? You have been unusual among Democrats, I think the Democrat among all of the senators running for president, most likely to vote for Donald Trump's judges who we know are especially hostile to dreamers and to the rights of immigrants. Now, in South Bend, it was not always easy to stand up in a conservative place like Indiana on immigration, but we delivered. I wish everyone is, was as perfect as you, Pete, but let me tell you what it's like to be in the arena. And number one, do the math. If my friend Andrew Yang was up here, that's what he'd say. In fact, I have opposed, uh, not supported, two-thirds of the Trump judges, so get your numbers right. And I would add one more thing. I have been in the arena. Ted Kennedy, he had made a pretty big allegation against me again, and I think I should have a right to respond. I'm stating the facts because these are votes that you took, and those votes set you alone among the Democrats running for president. No other de- is it true or is it false that no other Democrat First of all, from the Senate is, running for president voted that What you said about the judges act. are false. You are comparing me to two colleagues up here on this stage, and you are forgetting well, one thing. I would say thing. anybody who ran oh. for president this cycle, Senator no, Harris, Pete, Senator Booker, saw through this. If you could let me this. finish since I've been in the arena. Ted Kennedy asked me to work on the first immigration bill. We were able, with President Bush, to at least get that bill to a vote. I'm sorry, but Senator Sanders actually opposed that bill, and I worked on it, and if we had gotten that bill done, there would have been a path to citizenship for so many people. Then I worked on the 2013 bill. I'm actually so proud of the work I've done on immigration reform, and you know what? You have not been in the arena doing that work. You've memorized a bunch of talking points and a bunch of things, but I can tell you one thing. What the people of this country want, they want a leader that has the heart for the immigrants of this country, and that is me. You know, maybe leading a diverse city that was facing ruin doesn't sound like the arena to you. I'm used to senators telling mayors that senators are more important than mayors, but this is the arena too. You don't have to be in Washington to matter. Listen, I can't stand Pete, but I have to admit that he is kind of right here about her record. Um, But I did like when she said, you've memorized a bunch of talking points. You haven't put in the work. And, you know, I like that, but it's kind of true for Amy as well. So, like, these exchanges, when they take place, it's difficult for me to root for either of them because I I hate them both so much. But I think that over the course of the last month or so, Amy Klobuchar has become more favorable as she's attacked Pete Buttigieg more for me because I I absolutely, I can't stand him. He's smug. He is an elitist. He's just, he's the worst, right? He's the worst. Uh, He's a rat. So, um, and call me a Bernie bro. Don't give a shit. Look, <laughs> I like this portion of the debate because I want them to keep taking shots at each other because they know that one has to take the other down because they're both kind of eating into each other's leads, right? Back in the New Hampshire primary, they were neck and neck. So if one of them were out, the other could possibly have had enough votes to beat Bernie Sanders. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe, you know, that person who supported Amy Klobuchar after the last debate maybe would have went for Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or even Bernie Sanders. We we can't say for sure because voters aren't as ideological as we'd like to believe, even though they do care about policy. But um, yeah, these are both really fake politicians. And I think that one thing that 
showed us, um, that revealed to us about them at this debate, that was revealed to us, if you will, is that when they both go off, off script, they have no way of rebounding if they're attacked and they don't have like a specific line memorized to respond to a particular attack. Like, they, they just, they flounder. They don't know how to respond. They flail. And you saw that at this debate. Like, when Elizabeth Warren called out Mayor Pete's Medicare for All Who Wanted as raising prices, you could see he got, like, visibly flustered. His face turned red. Because he, he had no scripted response to that. So he can only sound smart if he's rehearsed it a million times in front of a mirror. And Amy Klobuchar is the same way. So when you kind of knock her off of her balance there and you start calling out her record, you bring up things that she wasn't anticipating, then she doesn't know what to do. She starts like, you know, trembling in anger at Pete Buttigieg. And I get it. He's irritating. But I mean, you have to. This is why you need to be more organic and just acknowledge that we're all human beings. Like you don't have to memorize everything. You don't have to come in with a script. Just talk, and maybe a couple of times during the debate you'll stumble stumble over your own words, like I just did. Maybe a couple of times during the debate you won't seem as articulate as you want to be because this is an exhausting event. But that's still going to come across better than if you're just rehearsed the entire time and you're thumb pointing because we fucking hate that nobody wants to see that this isn't the 1990s anymore we've moved past the rehearsed politicians we are now in the donald trump era and just be a human being like if you can prove to us that you're a human being and sometimes you get angry sometimes you, you know you don't have the right words for a particular situation or argument that's just human right you're not perfect no politician is perfect but showing us your flaws i think that will humanize you more than they think but they don't want that because they think it's just going to be perceived as weakness. But either way, like, I've talked too long. What is it? Uh, we're at, like, eight minutes in. I've talked too long about Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And I'm going to end the video because I can only focus on them for so long before I start to lose my mind. So the question of democratic socialism inevitably came up at last night's debate. And, um, look, I've long maintained that I don't actually think this is going to hurt Bernie Sanders as bad as mainstream pundits believe it will or are saying that it will because i mean it doesn't matter who the nominee is it could be joe biden amy klobuchar pete Buttigieg, whoever wins donald trump is going to say that they're socialist this is what republicans do this is what they've always done and john mccain back in 2008 can you guess what he called obama a socialist so it doesn't matter who the nominee is they're automatically going to be labeled a socialist because that's what Republicans do. But an advantage in actually identifying as a democratic socialist is being able to control the narrative, not saying, no, I'm not. Because voters who are worried about socialism, they're not going to believe you if they're going to vote Republican and they truly believe the lies about you being socialist. So if you actually are a socialist, you can control the narrative to an extent and take it back and say, well, sure, I'm a socialist, but this is what I mean by socialism. It's not that scary, is it? But tonight... I'm willing to say that Bernie Sanders being a democratic socialist is actually going to be an advantage for him, possibly, because the way that he handled that tonight was so masterful, so brilliant, that if he's successful here, if he could be the nominee and beat Donald Trump, like, we could possibly see other Democrats call themselves democratic socialists going forward, because this is how you do it. So he was asked about democratic socialism Watch the way that he handled this question like a boss. Senator Sanders, our latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll released yesterday, two-thirds of all voters said they were uncomfortable with a socialist candidate for president. What do you say to those voters, sir? What was the result of that poll? Who was winning? 
Uh, questions, questions to you. Well, the question was that I was winning, and I think by a fairly comfortable margin. Mike mentioned that. But here is the point. Let's talk about democratic socialism, not communism, Mr. Bloomberg. That's a cheap shot. Let's talk about democratic. Let's talk about what goes on in countries like Denmark, where Pete correctly pointed out they have a much higher quality of life in many respects than we do. What are we talking about? We are living in many ways in a socialist society right now. Problem is, as Dr. Martin Luther King reminded us, we have socialism for the very rich, rugged individualism for the poor. Wait a second. When Donald, let me finish. When Donald Trump gets $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies to build, link, to build luxury condominiums, that's socialism for the rich. When Walmart, we have to subsidize Walmart's workers who are on Medicaid and food stamps because the wealthiest family in America pays starvation wages. That's socialism for the rich. I believe in democratic socialism for working people, not billionaires. Health care for all, educational opportunity for all. Creating a government that works for all, not just Mr. Bloomberg. What a wonderful country we have. The best known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? Well, you'll miss that I work in Washington, House One. That's the first problem. Live in Burlington, House Two. That's good. And like thousands of other Vermonters, I do have a summer camp. Forgive me for that. But, Where is your home? But, which tax Which tax haven New do you York, have your home? New York City, thank you very much. Well, and I pay all my taxes. And I'm happy to do it because I get something for it. And let me say, I thought that the senator next to me was half right. I agree we should raise taxes on the... No. I disagree with the senator on the wealth tax, but I do agree with her that the rich aren't paying their fair share. We should raise taxes on the rich. I did that as mayor in New York City. I raised taxes. And if you take a look at my plans, the first thing I would do is try to convince Congress, because they've got to do it, we can't just order it, to roll back the tax cuts that the, that the um, uh, uh, Trump administration put in with the, uh, through Congress. Now, let me just say that Mike Bloomberg is a stupid person because he pointed to the senators on the stage as if they were the ones responsible for Trump's tax cut. They didn't vote for that dummy. Try to keep up. Like, what are you trying to say here? Very stupid. Very stupid. And he's a liar, by the way, because he said before that raising taxes on the wealthy is a bad idea or a stupid idea. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but this is a new position that he's taking for purposes of political expediency. So don't believe him. He's stupid. But when it comes to Bernie Sanders responding to that question... Oh, that was brilliant. Like the look on his face, the command that he took. Who's winning? Who's winning in that poll? Tell me. So you cite that poll, but you don't cite the most important part. Where in that same poll where people claim that they don't like socialism, Bernie's winning. It's Bernie. So you can say that that generic democratic socialist label may be a disadvantage to a generic Democrat on these ballots that polls use but when you put a face to the label and people know what he's talking about it actually makes a difference and the way that bernie sanders explained what he means by socialism like if you argue against this then you're not going to vote democrat anyway like this is just things that good people support um he claimed we're living in a socialist society now the problem is we have socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor, channeling Martin Luther King Jr. I mean,
brilliant, just brilliant. To bring up Dr. MLK Jr., when you're talking about socialism, that is really important and it matters because people are familiar with MLK. Even Republicans claim that, you know, they love MLK Jr., uh, even though we know that that wouldn't be the case if he were alive today. But, you know, they all know who MLK Jr. is. So if you quote him and you explain that that's the vision that you have for America, it suddenly becomes a little bit less scary. And Bernie Sanders also said, I believe in democratic socialism for working people, not for billionaires, healthcare for all, educational opportunity for all, creating a government that works for all of us, not just Mr. Bloomberg. Exactly. So when you educate people and you explain that we effectively have socialism for large multinational corporations with all of these corporate subsidies, but you don't get any benefits, you don't get any handouts, handouts for lack of a better word. I mean, we have to change that. We need democratic socialism that doesn't just benefit the wealthy but benefits everyone else like that's gonna land and let's say hypothetically speaking it doesn't land young people don't care about socialism people are enthusiastic about supporting a socialist who are millennials and zoomers why because capitalism is killing them literally it's killing the planet so you can't possibly say with a straight face that that's not going to land in a general election. And anyone who concern trolls about socialism, and they will after this debate, like they're not serious about defeating Donald Trump. Like on that debate stage tonight, what we saw was that there's one person who is strong enough to take on Donald Trump, who's popular enough, who has an answer for everything, who can actually beat Donald Trump. And that's Bernie Sanders. Look, Elizabeth Warren had a great performance, and I think that she could hold her own on a debate stage. But if you really want to win, I mean, Bernie Sanders demonstrated tonight why he's the best person, and why he's the frontrunner. What he's saying is resonating with voters. That's why he's winning. Now, the last thing that I want to uh, touch on there is Bloomberg tried to attack him and said that, you know, he's the socialist with three houses, and he tweeted about this as well because he's really proud of that attack, but Bernie Sanders came in with just oh, a death blow, and he said, which tax haven do you have as your home? Bernie's a beast. That was absolutely brilliant so um kudos to bernie sanders that was phenomenal and if you're worried about socialism hurting bernie sanders and you know you are considering voting for joe biden only because you think he's more electable because he doesn't have that socialist baggage if you will show them that debate clip you don't have to show them my video but just show them that debate clip of bernie sanders and if they have time, if they're interested in learning more, back in 2019, Bernie Sanders did, I think it was like a 45-minute long speech where he talked about democratic socialism. And it was probably one of the best speeches that I've ever heard, if not one of the best. And we have to educate people and let them know that if we truly want to win, we need someone who represents the people. And democratic socialists are not. Bernie Sanders has all the right policies. And if you educate them about those policies and what he means when he says he's a democratic socialist, it's no longer scary. You know, it's no longer something that seems foreign or communist. They just get it because what he's saying makes sense. It's going to land. It's going to resonate with people. And it already is. All right, folks, this video is going to be dark. We are going to take some time to catastrophize a little bit. And usually I try to stay away from doing things like that. I don't want to, you know, contribute any more toxicity to this primary process than is already out there. Nonetheless, I do believe it's important for us to kind of consider certain scenarios. You know, dwelling on this brokered convention, I worry about talking about it too much because I don't want you to take away from these videos that 
you know, the situation is hopeless and we can't win. Therefore, you might as well check out and not canvas and phone bank and donate to Bernie Sanders. That's not what I want you to take away from this video. I want us to understand that we're going up against a political behemoth. And this might literally be our last attempt to save democracy. So if you're in a good mood, please do not watch this video. Do yourself the favor. But I do think it's important that we indulge a little bit here. Um, after that debate in Nevada, when I saw every single candidate on that stage, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, say that they're open to superdelegates stealing the nomination away from the person with the most votes, it literally gave me this sick feeling in my stomach. Like I felt physically nauseous from that. And since that debate, I've been haunted by that. Like this thought in the back of my mind thinking, do we even live in a democracy? And this entire election really is going to put our democracy to the test. And it honestly may not survive. It may not survive. Um, because we have a substantial portion in the Democratic Party openly suggesting that maybe it's a good idea that we have a brokered convention in order to allow superdelegates to steal the nomination away from Bernie Sanders. And everyone on that debate stage was basically jockeying for it to be them, including Elizabeth Warren. And we need to talk about this so we can maybe plan some scenarios, protests and whatnot. But it doesn't just seem like this is something that they're considering as a possibility. In order to defeat Bernie Sanders now with the insurmountable lead that he's going to have after Super Tuesday, this is the strategy now. The strategy, I repeat, is to steal it from Bernie Sanders because that's the only way that they can stop him. There's an article in Politico that says that that is Mike Bloomberg's key strategy. And on top of that, other Democrats also have this strategy. So understand, they know they can't get enough pledged delegates to surpass Bernie, but they can still be the nominee. They will still remain in the race in hopes of pulling their delegates and just taking it away from Bernie Sanders. I mean, I just want to take a moment to think about how morally repugnant that is. Like, let me just explain my position. Like my mom, for example, she's someone who was never politically engaged. Um, she registered for the first time in her life at 65 years old to vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, just the other day, she donated $15 to Bernie Sanders. This is the first donation that she's ever given to a political candidate in her entire life. So to take that away from someone, and she's just one of many people, but I'm sure that a lot of people have been brought into the process, namely young people, but to take that away from them, for them to get so excited, knock on doors, donate to a candidate that they believe in, and then you just snatch that away from them like that, there's just no going back. There's no recovering from that. And it's just interesting and hypocritical how nobody's talking about the popular vote anymore. We had Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Democrats everywhere screeching at the top of their lungs about how important it was that we abolish the Electoral College because, I mean, the person with the most votes wins, right? That's the way it should be. And now they're saying, you know what? Party bosses... They should have a say in stealing the nomination away from Bernie Sanders if maybe I can benefit from that. It truly is morally reprehensible. And I want to get to this Politico article by David Siders because he's going to explain a little bit of the details of Mike Bloomberg's strategy, how he's currently lobbying party bosses to take the nomination away from Bernie 
and give it to him. He writes, Mike Bloomberg is privately lobbying Democratic Party officials and donors allied with his moderate opponents to flip their allegiance to him and block Bernie Sanders in the event of a brokered national convention. The effort, largely executed by Bloomberg's senior state-level advisors in recent weeks, attempts to prime Bloomberg for a second ballot contest at the Democratic National Convention in July by poaching supporters of Joe Biden and other moderate Democrats, according to two different strategists familiar with the talks and unaffiliated with Bloomberg. The outreach has involved meetings and telephone calls with supporters of Biden and Pete Buttigieg, as well as uncommitted DNC members in Virginia, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, and North Carolina, according to one of the strategists who participated in meetings and calls. With Sanders' emergence as the frontrunner in the presidential primary, Democrats in those states have recently raised the prospect that the Democratic Socialists could be a top-of-the-ticket liability. There's a whole operation going on, which is genius, said one of the strategists who is unaffiliated with any campaign and is going to help them win on the second ballot. They're telling them that's their strategy. Other candidates have quietly been in contact for months with superdelegates, the DNC members, members of Congress, and other party officials who could not vote on the first ballot at a contested national convention, but none have showcased it as a feature of their campaign as Hillary Clinton did in 2016. If Sanders secures a plurality of delegates but loses the nomination on a second ballot, many moderate and progressive Democrats alike predict the national convention in Milwaukee would devolve into chaos. Following the debate, former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villagayrosa, who has endorsed Mike Bloomberg, has chaired the 2012 Democratic National Convention, said a second ballot will likely be required this year. So let's just get one thing straight. Anyone who claims that the nomination should be taken from Bernie Sanders and uh, given to someone else. They're lying to you if electability is the justification for that. Because do you honestly believe that if you steal this nomination away from the most popular politician in America, that we're going to fall in line and support anyone else, even if it's Elizabeth Warren? You are handing Donald Trump a landslide. And I've said this before, that is the least of your concerns because unquestionably, Trump cruises to re-election. But on top of that, the Democratic Party is going to self-destruct, blow itself to pieces, and afterwards, they're going to try to pick up the scraps and it can't survive this. The party as an institution would die no institution can remain legitimate after something like that. Once you take it that far, then nobody believes in the process. Let me tell you this. I will never, ever vote for another Democrat ever again if this were to be the case. I promise you that because I can't support an institution that doesn't believe in democracy. Like sometimes in politics, you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. But if the fight's fair... I can accept that, right? If we did everything in our power to get Bernie elected, but Biden won fair and square, man, that would be really disappointed, disappointing, but at least it was a fair fight. If you tell us effectively that our votes do not matter and you undermine every single fucking thing that we have done now for five years to get Bernie Sanders elected... I'm never voting Democrat again. And guess what? Like back in 2016, when all of these Democratic Party loyalists were browbeating us because we wouldn't come out to support Hillary Clinton after the DNC rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, I still voted. And Democrats didn't like that I voted for Jill Stein, 
But guess what? I also voted for Democrats down the ticket, right? I voted in House races for Democrats and local races for Democrats. But guess what? When I say I'll never vote for a Democrat again, I mean never again. So my Senator Jeff Merkley is up for re-election. If Democrats steal the nomination, not even Jeff Merkley gets my vote. I don't vote Democrat ever again because this institution is illegitimate and I cannot lend my support to that illegitimate institution. And look, I just want people in the comment section, if you're still watching, what would you do if the nomination is taken from you? Would you support the nominee? Just, we'll see this because I have a feeling that maybe this video gets attention from other people. And they're going to say, look at this Bernie bro, he's Bernie or bust. It's not just me, it's everyone. And not only do I personally make the choice to not vote in this election and just boycott the entire election, I tell the 300,000 people in my audience to do the same exact fucking thing because if you're going to steal a nomination away from us, we're not going to give you power. We're not going to give you permission to rule, to be you know in control of government, when you just told all of us that our voices don't matter. No, not at all. And guess what? My audience may only be 300,000, but there's another 300,000 with David Dole. Another 800,000 with Kyle Kalinske. Another 200,000 with Tim Black. All of us collectively in indie media as a block will form a boycott of this entire election. And maybe that's not enough. But understand... You're going to lose if you do this. Like, we don't even have to do anything. Like, we can sit back and just not vote and not say anything, and you still lose because this is such a brazen theft of an election, of democracy, that normal people won't take it. Non-politically savvy individuals won't stand for that. And I can already envision this situation where they steal it from Bernie and give it to Elizabeth Warren, and then they browbeat us because, oh, this is the most left-leaning Democratic nominee in decades. No. Absolutely not. And look, I was already Bernie or bust in 2016. I've been Bernie or bust in 2020, but I'm someone who kind of likes to hold my cards close to my chest because I wanted to tell everyone to vote blue no matter who once Bernie becomes the nominee. But understand, nobody gets my vote unless it's Bernie Sanders. And on top of that, I take that a step further. If the nomination is stolen, I don't vote Democrat anymore. I'm done with that. And I guarantee you, I'm not the only one. A lot of other people are going to say the same fucking thing. Because again, we cannot participate in a process that is illegitimate. Okay? So the party will be just demolished. And even David Plouffe said this on MSNBC. The party can't recover from this. They can't recover from this. So it doesn't matter if you browbeat people and fearmonger about Donald Trump. Nothing will matter. If you do this, you destroy the party. But understand that they know this. This is the strategy. They would rather lose to Trump and literally destroy the fucking party if it means stopping Bernie Sanders. That's how morally bankrupt the Democratic Party is, including Elizabeth Warren. Now, on the note of Elizabeth Warren, you know, she had a surrogate appear on an episode of The Hills TV uh, Rising with Sagar and uh, Crystal Ball, just, they're amazing. And Adam Green, head of the PCCC, defended what Warren said about allowing superdelegates to steal the, the nomination away from Bernie Sanders. And he didn't just defend that indefensible position, but he went out of his way to lie 
about what that would entail and lie about Bernie Sanders supporters in the process. Take a look. Elizabeth Warren didn't commit to backing the candidate with the most amount of delegates as the eventual nominee. Does that mean that she's hoping to be a consensus candidate at a contested convention? I wouldn't read that much into it, but you know, I, I kind of find, I don't really find this conversation terribly interesting, but a couple mm. things are worth noting. I mean, one, um, you know, as with the rules in Iowa that landed in a weird place, were pretty much written by the Sanders people on the Reform Commission, right? So it's a little bit weird for anybody to be contesting that. Second, it's a progressive principle to have ranked choice voting. You know, I don't think it is acceptable to have a Democratic nominee who only has the support of 25, 30% of Democrats. Um, you know, we believe in ranked choice voting. We, we ideally would pass it nationally. And I think Bernie Sanders' only point last night was that superdelegates should not be voting, but he actually didn't even say the delegates as a whole should not be voting. So, look, I think this will, this will you know, be part of the overall effectiveness argument that will continue to be there with Bernie Sanders and that Elizabeth Warren started last night. That if you want someone who's a bold progressive, she's the one who can actually get it done. She is the real deal progressive. And when she touches things, they don't fall apart. They usually get better, like she did with the CFPB. She didn't fight for the same things for 30 years and lose. She came to Washington with one core priority, the CFPB, passed the crown jewel of Wall Street reform into law, had many other victories. I think that will extend um, you know, to the arguments in the days ahead. But Adam, shouldn't the candidate with the most votes end up being the nominee? I mean, Democrats have been talking for four years about the popular vote and how the will of the people should decide. Isn't it going to destroy the party, essentially, if you have Bernie Sanders coming to the convention with a plurality of delegates and then it gets taken from him by superdelegates on the second ballot? I mean, that is going to destroy the party. Yeah, let's not let's not feed conspiracy people online, Crystal. Um, person with How the is most that a conspiracy? Your candidate admitted to it on the debate stage last night, as did all the others. No, no, no that's a preemptive stirring up the pie. The person with the most support should be the nominee. It is not okay to win the Democratic nomination on a technicality, which is what some people are trying to do. In a six-way race, if somebody is blocked at 20, 25, 27%, that, that you cannot argue that they are the choice of, of Democrats. You know, it, it has to be a ranked choice voting principle where the Democratic Party can look at, you know, as a whole and say, who's our best bet to win? Who can we all unify around? Um, I, I, don't, I don't see how you can defend the proposition that if at the end of the day it is true that only 25 percent, 27 percent of Democratic voters want one person as a nominee, they should be the nominee. That just seems mm -hmm. a little bit weird to me. And again, I, I, I think I, it seems a little I, bit I, weird I, to I, say that a candidate who did even more poorly than that should be the nominee, though. Yeah, again. Ranked choice voting. Do you or do you not agree with ranked choice voting? So why don't you just admit that you're not progressive and your biggest priority isn't actually defeating Donald Trump, it's defeating Bernie Sanders. And look, if you are donating to the PCCC, stop giving them your money. Is that someone who you support? Someone like that? Who's literally lying? He called crystal ball conspiratorial. When Elizabeth Warren admitted she'd be okay with superdelegates stealing the nomination. Like, what a smug prick you are. And you say that with a straight face. And he said... As with the rules in Iowa that landed in a weird place, were pretty much written by the Sanders people at the DNC Unity Reform Commission. So it's a little weird for anybody to be contesting that. So basically he's saying this superdelegate, uh, you know, rules that are currently in place, this was all instituted by Sanders people at the DNC Unity Reform Commission. Except, you fucking liar, that's not true. They fought to eliminate superdelegates and they had to bargain with Clintonistas who wanted to keep this undemocratic process intact, so having them vote on the second ballot and not the first was the compromise, you fucking liar. And on top of that, 
He said, it's a progressive principle to have ranked choice voting. We don't have ranked choice voting. Are you ranking your choices? Did I get to rank my fucking choice? You're talking about ranked choice voting for elites, you fucking liar. So how can you say that with a straight face and you're the co-founder of the PCCC? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And he says that with this smug fucking look on his face as he pitches Elizabeth Warren as the better progressive. No, that so-called better progressive has been screaming about the fucking popular vote for three whole fucking years. And now all of a sudden, if it may benefit her, if she can steal it from Bernie, well, you know what? To hell with all that. Unreal. Now, on top of that, he claims that getting the most votes and winning outright is winning on a technicality. I mean, these are the people that we are forced to share a party with. Even so-called progressives who self-identify as progressive, totally cool with democracy going to shit, burning the entire fucking party down if they can take it from Bernie Sanders. These people are absolutely disgusting and they're going to try to blame you when Trump gets a landslide if they steal this shit from fucking Bernie Sanders. They have nobody to blame but themselves. And these people are disgusting. They have no morals. They are immoral at worst, amoral at best. And I just, I can't stand them. I can't stand them. Good on Crystal Ball for pushing back. I give her credit because I wouldn't have been that polite. Um, You could tell she was biting her tongue. But I mean, to hear that type of bullshit, to not only defend the indefensible, but then blame people who are trying to fight to make the Democratic Party more democratic, small d democracy is what I'm talking about. It's just, it's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. Democracy in America is hanging on by a thread. And people are cheering on its death all so they can beat Bernie Sanders. Guess what? If Bernie Sanders wins, that's basically our only hope because then he can take control of the party apparatus, change those institutional mechanisms that are just brazenly undemocratic, get rid of superdelegates. But if he loses and you tell us very explicitly that there's no fucking way that our voices matter because if we ever get another candidate, you're just going to take it if you don't like them. That party cannot survive as an institution. That party collapses. And I will actively campaign to get people to not vote because you can't participate in a process that just flies in the face of democracy you have to boycott this election you have no choice that's the only moral option this isn't just about the next four years with donald trump this is about the next 100 years with our democracy if we can even survive that far with fucking climate change and not all die so I don't know what else to say about this. The fact that we have to contemplate what would happen if our votes just get stolen from us. It shouldn't be the case. But even fucking Elizabeth Warren and her surrogates, these little sycophantic Democratic Party loyalists, are okay with that. Well, we are going to absolutely fight to stop you from doing that. And if you're successful here, there's going to be hell to pay. People will take to the streets and protest in every fucking city in America. You're not going to be able to steal this from us. We're not going to take this lying down. We will not accept you stealing it from us with whatever justification that you have. We won't take that. There will be hell to pay. I promise you that. So I don't care who it is. Michael Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, you can steal this nomination and give it to AOC. If Bernie gets the most votes, he becomes the nominee. I don't give a flying fuck if he gets 29%, and then the person closest to him gets 28.5%. More votes, 
we win. We walk in and we walk out as the nominee. Period. End of story. We're not negotiating here. So I want everyone to be as loud as they possibly can in telling Tom Perez and telling the DNC and telling Elizabeth Warren and telling Pete Buttigieg that if you steal this from us, you lose. You lose and you destroy the party and we don't vote. And it's not just that we don't vote for the top of the ticket. We don't vote in local races. We don't vote in Senate and House races. You lose the House. You lose the Senate. You lose the White House. And then your entire fucking party collapses. So choose wisely. Think about how badly you want to defeat Bernie Sanders. Because if you truly want to risk everything, risk destroying the party to defeat Bernie Sanders, understand the consequences that will come to fruition if you fucking do that, you goddamn ghouls. Fucking try us. Fucking try us, I dare you. So at a recent debate, Elizabeth Warren claimed on stage with a straight face that it was only her and Amy Klobuchar that didn't have super PACs. Every other candidate was corrupted by dark money and they had super PACs. Now, I would agree with you if you chose to exclude Bernie Sanders from that conversation, but she didn't. She was implying that Bernie Sanders like Pete Buttigieg, like Joe Biden, is also corrupt. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, I guess you could technically say that's true if you qualify organizations that are grassroots funded like Our Revolution as a super PAC. Elizabeth Warren, judging by this picture, didn't really have a problem with Our Revolution not too long ago, but now that it's politically expedient to pretend like it's a super PAC, like some Wall Street funded group, like Pete Buttigieg has, you know, now she's choosing to attack Bernie Sanders for it. And like the so-called super PACs that Bernie Sanders has, we're talking about the Sunrise Movement. We're talking about National Nurses United. We're talking about Our Revolution. These are grassroots funded organizations that have money because small dollar donations come into them. These are not dark money funded groups created to prop up, you know, a candidate and help them get more donations than the federal contribution. Like if I'm a billionaire, right? If I want to donate more than that 2700 or 2800 maximum to Joe Biden, the only way that I can do that is to donate to one of his super PACs because then I can give them $100,000 and that's one way to get around campaign finance laws. So if you're honestly saying with a straight face that our revolution and the Sunrise Movement is akin to those dark money groups that you know, buy television ads and spend money on behalf of the candidate. I mean, you're just being so disingenuous. You can't not characterize that as a lie because that's basically what it is. I mean, again, on a technicality, you could say, you know what? Sure, we can qualify that as super PACs, but still, even if you said that, you would have to disaggregate them. You'd have to explain there's kind of a big difference between our revolution and Joe Biden's super PAC, unite the country. Like, these are very different things. But Elizabeth Warren is a political opportunist. She's a snake. And of course, she's lying about Bernie Sanders. And she thought that that would be one way to get one over on him. And it's not just Elizabeth Warren, to be fair. Pete Buttigieg claims that Bernie Sanders is bankrolled by nine quote-unquote dark money groups. And it's funny because the Sunrise Movement responded saying, Say our name, Pete Buttigieg. We dare you. And look, as Jane pointed out, these are the groups who Buttigieg claims are dark money groups. National Nurses United, the Sunrise Movement, Dream Defenders, Center for Popular Democracy, People's Action, Our Revolution, Make the Road Action, Movement Voter Project, Indivisible Project. These are all grassroots funded organizations, right? And if you're going to say that these are comparable or even in the same category as Joe Biden's Super PAC or your Super PAC, Pete, 
which is funded by Wall Street contributors. I mean, you're just, you're a sleazeball. That's all there is to say about it. Now, Elizabeth Warren, she has the endorsement of the PCCC, so it honestly is mind-boggling to me. If we're accepting that she believes our revolution and the Sunrise Movement are super PACs, then why isn't the PCCC a super PAC if they do the same fucking thing? Like, do you understand the double standard here? It's like, nobody cares about principles or policy, they just want to get one over on the other candidates and lie. And since Bernie Sanders is the frontrunner, you see all of these people sinking their claws in their desperate to say anything about Bernie Sanders. All these Bernie bros are harassing members of the Culinary Union. Oh wait, the Culinary Union's members, not the leadership, but the members, actually support Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All. Hmm, nobody brings that up. Like, this is pure desperation. And I do want to read this article from Real Sludge, who sheds a little bit of light about these organizations that Elizabeth Warren claims are super PACs supporting Bernie Sanders. Quote, while that statement may be technically true, not all super PACs are the same. In fact, there's a wide chasm between super PACs backing three Democratic candidates, each funded with six-figure donations from wealthy finance executives, and the super PACs backing Sanders, which consists of a nurses' unions PAC and a coalition of progressive organizations that represent over two million working-class people of color. It's ridiculous to lump groups like Sunrise in with billionaire-funded super PACs. Stephen O'Hanlon, communications director of the youth-led climate group, the Sunrise movement, which is backing Sanders, told Sludge. Unlike PACs set up by billionaires to blanket the airwaves with attack ads, Sunrise and other groups were working to represent the working people, young people, and people of color. The Sanders campaign declined to comment for this story. In a Meet the Press interview with Chuck Todd on February 9th, Sanders reiterated that he does not want help from outside groups, but he was clear about who makes up these groups. Some of them are nurses, some of them are immigration activists, and some of them are civil rights activists, Sanders said. Todd asked if Sanders would accept help since it's already out there, and the candidate answered, it's legal, what can I do? People have the right to participate in the political process. Now again, let's accept that these groups are super PACs, technically, right? Um, but guess what? Justice Democrats is a super PAC. Elizabeth Warren endorsed a Justice Democrat in this cycle. Wolfpack is a super PAC, right? These are all super PACs. So there's a real distinction. There's a nuanced conversation to be had here. These are not organizations that propped up specifically for the purpose of allowing one candidate to, you know, get around campaign finance laws and allow their wealthy donors to exceed the maximum contribution by donating to them. These are organizations that existed before this election or popped up because they were catalyzed and coalesced around a single issue like Sunrise, like Dream Defenders, right? So it's just, it's so disingenuous for Elizabeth Warren to try to make it seem as if Bernie Sanders, like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, is just as corrupt because look at all these dark money groups. Like it's, it's beyond pathetic that she's stooping to this, right? Considering she has the support of similar groups like the PCCC, like she has supported our revolution and endorsed Justice Democrats candidates, right? So it's just, it's so phony. But this is why I wanted to talk about this story, right? Because the person who's been the loudest about how bad super PACs are, Elizabeth Warren, well, guess what she has? She's got a brand new shiny super PAC that is bankrolling her. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. Listen, for those of you not keeping score, that's two huge issues that Elizabeth Warren flipped on within the span of a week. She flipped on the popular vote, 
because after three years of uh, you know, screaming about the need to abolish the Electoral College in favor of just allowing the winner of the popular vote to become the president, which I agree with, by the way. At the last debate, she said, you know what? I'm actually okay with superdelegates stealing the nomination away from Bernie Sanders, the person who will likely have the most votes. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what she meant. And now, after, what, one, two weeks of criticizing everyone, including Bernie Sanders, for having super PACs, what does she do? She gets a super PAC herself. This is why Elizabeth Warren can't be trusted. Her political instincts are just horrible. At every chance she gets, it's like she jumps at the opportunity to embarrass herself. And I'll give her credit. She performed exceptionally well at that last debate. But I mean, like, she's either on or she's completely off. And if you want to beat Donald Trump, you can't, you know, roll the dice with someone who may show up to a debate half asleep or might knock it out of the park. You need consistency. And Elizabeth Warren has shown and proven that she's an opportunist more than anything, right? She makes political calculations that are detrimental to her career, but she just doesn't really care about the optics. She doesn't care that... She had the respect and support from progressives, but then she squandered that and is doing nothing to win it back, right? So it's just embarrassing. And the worst part about all of this is that in order to defend her newfangled super PAC, she's trying to hide behind her gender, weaponize identity politics to suggest that, well, you know, since the men have one, uh, I think I should have a super PAC too. This is truly cringeworthy. Take a look. Senator, do you want the super PAC supporting you to stand? Do you want the super PAC supporting you to stand down? So look, the first day I got in this race over a year ago, I said I hope every presidential candidate who comes in will agree: no super PACs for any of us. I renewed that call dozens of times, and I couldn't get a single Democrat to go along with me. Finally, we reached the point a few weeks ago where all of the men who are still in this race and on the debate stage all had either super PACs or they were multi-billionaires and could just, you know, rummage around in their sock drawers and find enough money to be able to fund a campaign. And the only people who didn't have them were the two women. And at that point, there are some women around the country who said, you know, that's just not right. So here's where I stand. If all the candidates want to get rid of super PACs, count me in. I'll lead the charge. But that's how it has to be. It can't be the case that a bunch of people keep them and only one or two don't. Wow. <laughs> that's so pathetic. So basically, you know, her argument is, I'm happy to get rid of my super PAC but everyone else has to do it first. So let's, you know, extrapolate a little bit and, you know, envision a situation in the general election where Elizabeth Warren starts taking money from Wall Street. She starts taking money from corporate PACs in the military industrial complex. Can you imagine her excuse? Well, Trump's doing it. So if Trump stops, then I'll stop too. But I'm not going to unilaterally disarm. As Pete likes to say, I'm not going to run this race with one hand, you know, tied, tied behind my back. This is just not how you prove to people that you're a principled progressive. It shows you're desperate. And when that desperation starts to creep in, that's when all of the principles go away. Unbelievable. And yet she is criticizing Bernie Sanders. 
Oh, no, no, he has a super PAC. He's funded by dark money groups, and he's basically as corrupt as Joe Biden, people to judge, you know. It is what it is. Elizabeth Warren is such a bad candidate. She is such a bad candidate. And it almost makes me sad that she chose to run for president in 2020. Like, I always wanted her to be president before Bernie Sanders ran in 2016. Um, but like just seeing her run an action, it kind of ruined it, right? Like I was trying to put aside her betrayal in 2016 because we need as much allies as we can get, but we've got to face the music. She's just not an ally. She's not, you know, um, willing to be there for progressives a hundred percent of the time. Sometimes she votes with Donald Trump. Sometimes she'll, you know, stop the TPP or try to stop the TPP or whatever. But I mean, like at the end of the day, Elizabeth Warren, she just is, she's not great. She's not great. You know, I think that it's probably still accurate to say that she's the second most progressive senator in America, but the distance between her and Bernie Sanders is just miles. It's miles. Now, since Bernie Sanders doesn't have a super PAC that runs ads and, you know, has unlimited Wall Street contributions being funneled to it, um, and now Elizabeth Warren does, Bernie Sanders decided to get the last laugh, and he tweeted out, You can't change a corrupt system by taking its money. I am proud to be the only non-billionaire in this race without a super PAC, spending millions of dollars to support me. And there you have it. Elizabeth Warren has nothing to say because she has a super PAC now. You've got a super PAC, so what are you going to do? If you want to argue that our revolution and the Sunrise Movement organizations that you'd be happy to have the endorsements of are super PACs, then make that case. But don't just tell us half-truths, right? Don't give us half the story. Don't be disingenuous and say, well, he has a super PAC. Explain what you mean. Do you honestly believe that Dream Defenders and Our Revolution and the Sunrise Movement are comparable to the Wall Street-funded super PACs that back people like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden? If you want to make that case and have that position, fine, but defend it. Don't lie. Don't be sneaky and disingenuous like the snake that you are. Just come out and say, I think that these groups are super PACs. A super PAC is a super PAC, and they're technically super PACs, so they're super PACs. Fine. Great. But she's not telling you that, because once she says, well, what I'm referring to really is the Sunrise Movement, then people see through her lie, right? They see through it, and they say, oh, isn't Sunrise Movement... The organization that you really wanted to get the endorsement of? I mean, even Pete Buttigieg, as he criticizes organizations like the Sunrise Movement, they explain how he was being really nice to them, trying to butter them up to get that endorsement. But they're a principled organization, and I truly believe they did this objective analysis of all the different climate change proposals, and Bernie's was simply the best. But now, since they're not endorsing Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren, that's a super PAC. And that's corrupting of Bernie Sanders. Like, politics is such a dirty game. And part of me feels really bad because I, like, I don't want to dunk on Elizabeth Warren because she really isn't the worst candidate in this race. I mean, not even close, right? It's it's uh, Mike Bloomberg, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden. They're the worst by far. However, Elizabeth Warren, like, just seeing where she was at the start of this race and how far she's fallen, it really is just depressing and sad i mean politics is just a dirty game and there's really no heroes in politics no heroes in politics anyone is more than capable of letting you down in the event an opportunity arises 
where, you know, that's the best course of action to advance their careers. Listen, I try my best to be a good little representative of the left. And, you know, I try to avoid talking about getting people fired and cancel culture because I genuinely like that's not the person who I am. But I've got to ask in spite of that, in spite of everything I just said, why does Chris Matthews still have a job at MSNBC? He's so stupid that he brings down the entire network. And look, I'm not going to pretend like I'm satisfied with the current trajectory that MSNBC is on, but I mean, everyone else is here and Chris Matthews is down here. That's how bad it is. Like, he's so bad. He is the Janine Pirro of MSNBC. He's an embarrassment. He's genuinely, I think, stupid. And just when I thought he couldn't get any dumber, he manages to surprise me and lower the bar even further. So it's funny because, you know, Ben Shapiro responded to this charge from the left that Bloomberg is trying to buy this election by tweeting, OMG, Bloomberg is buying the election. Say people whose chief candidates want to hand people healthcare, college educations, and housing they're not paying for. Now, this is a pretty standard right-wing talking point. They call social safety net programs vote buying. It's stupid. It's, it's disingenuous. Um, we're paying taxes. So what we're saying is we want those tax dollars to benefit us and not the billionaires who fund Ben Shapiro's program and the Daily Wire, right? So it's not vote buying, of course. But I mean, you expect that type of disingenuity from right-wing dipshits like um, Ben Shapiro. Except I tweeted this out and was proven right so fast. This is genuinely one of the dumbest takes I've ever seen on this website. But still, how long until CNN and MSNBC pundits start saying this if it comes down to a two-way race between Bernie and Bloomberg? The answer is immediately. It doesn't even have to come down to a two-way race between Bloomberg and Bernie. Someone on MSNBC, Chris Matthews, is already saying that, using that same dumb argument that Ben Shapiro is using. I was proven right in a day, and I gave them like a month after Super Tuesday to start making this claim. But like that, see how quickly they use right-wing talking points to try to do, you know, a uh, Anything in their power to stop a left-wing populist candidate? It's incredible. So Jordan Sheridan tweeted out, Chris Matthews with Nina Turner just said, Bernie Sanders is buying the election like Bloomberg. His rationale? Sanders proposing canceling student debt, free public college, is the same as Bloomberg spending $350 million on television ads. Oh, and then he plays dumb when Nina Turner explains how Mike Bloomberg is buying the election. <laughs> do you mean that he's buying votes like what are we talking about here is, is he literally paying people off oh my god i don't know what to say about this just watch that, buying the election just okay. flat out what senator sanders is doing chris is building a real grassroots movement having conversations with people what mayor bloomberg is doing is just sp spreading you mean buying using money to get votes he is is that what you're saying that, are you saying using money to get 350 votes? million dollars worth of ads his own money okay just to okay your we, definition is we, buying an election 
using money to get votes. He is using. You know what I'm saying? Well, I know exactly what you you're know saying, what I'm saying, and I'm not, I'm saying. I'm not going down that road. What I am saying is that he's not building a movement. He's not talking to the people. He's just throwing his money out there. But that's not going to to work. Okay. If I'm in college right now, and I had student loans. They got me through college. If somebody came along and said, "I'm going to pay off all your student loans and what else?" And if you're going to a public university, I'm paying all your tuition. Is that buying votes? Now, when you say that Mike Bloomberg is buying the election. Are you honestly telling me that he's paying people, what, $150 a pop to vote for him? Where's your evidence of that, Missy? I don't, I don't know what to say. Of course, that's not what we're saying. And the fact that you don't know that and that you're even feigning ignorance tells me that you can't, you can't be on national television. How many millions of people tune into Chris Matthews every single night? If you tune in, you're going to walk away dumber than when you first started watching. And he's a news anchor. News is supposed to inform voters. Like going into the voting booth, you're supposed to know more theoretically if you watch the news. You're supposed to be a more informed, enlightened voter. But how can you say that about someone who watches Chris Matthews? Who has the political analysis of a fucking eight-year-old. How can you say that? And he's saying that offering college is tantamount to buying votes, channeling Ben Shapiro, because that makes sense. See, it's not buying votes if you get elected and you give tax cuts to the rich, people like Chris Matthews, but it is buying votes if you do anything for the peasants. Do you see the logic here? Like, it honestly doesn't make sense to me why they keep someone on who's so genuinely idiotic. Like, and I'm not saying that to be petty and insult him. I'm saying I really believe he has a low IQ. No, I don't believe it. I know it. Listen to him. Watch his show for like an hour. Don't. But if you did, you'd see how fucking stupid this guy is. Like, his brain is melting out of his ears, and you can put him on Fox News, and he'd still be one of the dumbest people on Fox News. Like, that's how bad it is. That's how low the bar is set by Chris Matthews who literally believes that if Bernie's elected, there's going to be executions in Central Park. Like, how stupid do you have to be to believe that? I hate Donald Trump with every fiber of my being. Did I believe that there would be executions in Central Park with Donald Trump? No. There's executions abroad with regard to militarism, right? He's locking babies in cages. But there was no indication that We'd start killing Americans in the streets of America if Donald Trump were elected president. Like, if you become so hyperbolic, people take you less seriously. And the fact that this moron is on MSNBC five days a week, it's just so bad for democracy. Like, MSNBC is a cancer in our society. And that's not to say that Fox News is any better, because I think they're objectively worse. But in terms of just this election cycle and how unfair... All of these cable news networks are to Bernie Sanders. I mean, objectively speaking, Fox News has been more fair to Bernie Sanders. Objectively speaking. MSNBC has been the worst. Excluding Chris Hayes, maybe. I just, I don't understand how someone who embarrasses the network like that is allowed to stay on air. I would not allow him to produce a video 
and uploaded on the Humanist Report YouTube channel. That's how much of a danger I think he is, because if you're not informing people, then you shouldn't talk about politics. And I'm not talking about you need to give everyone a history lesson in every single video. I mean, like, if you just are at least minimally competent, you have even a minimal amount of insight to offer, that's better than what Chris Matthews is offering. I'd like to think that Americans are smarter than that, but how many people watch Chris Matthews and they're persuaded by his dumb arguments? I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. So this is genuinely embarrassing. And you'd think that he'd become a little bit more self-aware because he keeps finding himself in hot water. People keep making fun of him. Like Michael Moore was on and made fun of him about that Central Park execution comment. And he kind of laughed it off. But I mean, then do better. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say. Do better. Stop saying things that are so stupid. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that you keep saying this. Like, if I put my foot in my mouth in a video, I'm being extra cautious for at least a couple of months. And we've all done it before. We're all human beings, right? Nobody's perfect. But what I'm saying is, like, if you say something that is really just laughably stupid, like, watch it. Just try to do better. But, I mean, he can't help himself. He's so stupid that just a week later after making his Central Park execution comment, and now he's saying that Bernie's trying to buy the election and he's playing dumb when we talk about how Mike Bloomberg is trying to buy the election. Politics can be so exhausting sometimes. It really can be. And um, I anticipated this with the 2020 election, but no matter how much you try to anticipate just how tiresome this is going to be, it's always 10 times worse than you expected. Hello everyone, I'm here with Chris Armitage running in Washington State's 5th Congressional District. He is challenging a Republican named Kathy McMorrison-Rogers, and he is running a fantastic campaign, and he is poised to be the Democratic nominee. Chris, thank you for coming on the program. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. So you are running in this very grassroots progressive campaign. You received the endorsements of Brand New Congress, your local Our Revolution chapter. You're a veteran running this dynamic campaign. But I want you to talk about the dynamic of this race, because this is a Republican seat that you're fighting for. And it seems like there's not much interest from other Democrats. You're currently the, the only one running. So it seems as if you are the presumptive Democratic Party nominee for this seat. But it's not a foregone conclusion because you are a grassroots candidate. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to run and the dynamics of this race? Sure. And I want to mention, too, we actually got the National Law Revolution endorsement a week or two Congrats. ago as well. That's great. Uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. And, um, you know, it's an interesting race. We have support, like you said, from a lot of non-establishment organizations and uh it, you know, the Washington State Progressive Caucus and, and Blue America and Brand New Congress. But we're also getting some interesting support, despite me being a, a grassroots candidate, won't take corporate money, um, you know, all people powered, running unabashedly as a progressive and the first openly LGBT candidate in this race um, and a first time candidate uh, for office. Um, but, uh, you know, involved in the activist community, a lot of people are really rallying out here. Because this district is only plus nine red. The thing is, there is not a Democratic establishment in eastern Washington, in Washington's 5th Congressional District. Uh, we had a Speaker of the House who represented this district. He served from 1964 to 1994. And then he lost. And then we've had Republican representation for the last 25 years. 
And uh, that that Speaker of the House, uh, the last Democrat to hold this seat, you know, he won a lot of those rural areas. But after his loss, there just wasn't any infrastructure building for Democrats to win. And, you know, one of the things I really communicate to folks out in the district is that I'm not running this race um, trying to be right, left, up, down. I'm running this race and supporting the policies I support because they're what are going to help people in eastern Washington the most. In some of our counties, we have 10% unemployment. Uh, and some of our, while well, the president brags about national unemployment, in some of our counties, we have a third of the population under the poverty line. In some of our counties, we have two thirds of students on, on reduced or free lunch. And so folks are really struggling. Housing costs are getting more expensive. And at the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm the only person in this race, but that's also because for almost a year, uh, we've been mobilizing. I announced last May and just started showing up at neighborhood council meetings and finding other people who are done with our current representative, who is completely absent from the district, who doesn't support the Equal Rights Amendment, who... Um, has voted, you know, many times uh, to restrict people's rights, restrict people's opportunities, voted for the Trump tax cuts and votes with Trump and Lindsey Graham and and Steve King and all those folks 95 percent of the time completely in lockstep. And, and she's running for her nine term, ninth term. People can see that that's that's it's uh, it's not going to cut it. We need a change. We need something better. Yeah. And in, in this district, I love that you're not sacrificing your principles, but you aren't necessarily emphasizing the label. You're just saying, I support Medicare for all. Here's that how that affects you. And in terms of like how that is actually um, landing in your district, what has the response been to Republican people? Because I, I've always maintained that I think that policies like Medicare for all and really working class targeted policies they will resonate with some Republicans. You just have to explain how it has this concrete impact on their lives. So how has that landed just with regard to your district? Rural hospitals across this district were closing down until the ACA came around and it made them profitable for the first time in a long time. So, you know, that minimal intervention was really important and helpful for a lot of folks out here. And, you know, when I talk about Medicare for all, one of the first things I mention is that we, you know, I, I, I used to have a commander who would tell me the best answer is the right answer, the second best answer is the wrong answer, and the worst answer is no answer. And right now, we're not getting any answers. I meet people across this district, no matter if it's a rural area or a suburban area, and they'll tell me stories about how they were a family of five with three diabetics sharing one insulin prescription among all three of them every single month, rolling those dice about people who avoid going to the doctor when they get injured because they might not be able to buy, buy food. And even worse, it might be their child who was injured. And they have to ask themselves, am I going to pay for that x-ray just to find out that nothing's wrong and then we don't have grocery money? And, and so it, it, it's affecting people. Like our district is 25% bigger than New Jersey. It's over 10 counties. It, it covers a lot of area. But this unites us. And when I was active duty Air Force, I, I had solid, strong, good insurance. Most of my childhood, I was underinsured or uninsured, except for when my dad was working a good union job. And so I remember going off to wrestling practice and knowing that if I got hurt, it would hurt my family financially. 
that wasn't a good feeling. That's not something a 12-year-old should have to deal with. And in the military, we had, we had our own version of universal single payer. That's what TRICARE is. You have staff, salaried doctors who are wearing the same uniform as you. They're in a base clinic or hospital that's completely run internally on base. There's no billings. There's no billing at all. The administrative costs are way lower. And the doctor doesn't get paid more if they see more patients. Their whole job is to make sure you're healthy. I many times a doctor could would just say things like, hey, you know, I think you're good, but why don't you go up to the third floor and get an X-ray, get an MRI, just to be sure. And that's never going to happen in the civilian world. And so when I speak to folks, no matter how conservative or liberal or progressive, it doesn't matter. The idea that nobody should make more money because you're more sick resonates across the board. Yeah, totally. I mean, propaganda is effective, but only effective to a point, right? I mean, people, these are lived experiences that we're kind of speaking to. I mean, when you have this insurance vulture that you're arguing on the phone with to pay a bill that they're supposedly supposed to, you know, cover, and you have to argue with them to pick up the tab when you get this gigantic medical bill, I mean, you can't lie about that. You can't explain to us how much we love our private insurance companies. Nobody likes that. So I think that when you really have these types of conversations and you just cut, you know, you push away all that partisan stuff, and you just talk to people, it really does land. So tell us about this race, because you're going up against a well-funded behemoth. So assuming you're able to actually win that primary, what do you think you can do to actually pull off a victory here, which would, I think, be a national upset? It would be a huge news story. Most years, uh, so well, I'll also say Washington State is a top two primary. So as a Democrat, I will be challenging our Republican incumbent in the primary. Hmm. Uh, and most okay. years, we only... Yeah, most years we only have one Democrat make it to the primary period. Uh, we, we don't have a deep bench of people to run out here. Uh, and so, um, you know, 2018 was the first time that in her, you know, eight terms, my opponent, uh, that she had really been given a run for her money. Literally, we just had in most years, our candidates only raised about 350,000. Our 2018 candidate raised about 5 million and, and got this district put on the blue to red li- or red to blue list um, and still ended up losing. Our 2018 candidate was uh, more moderate. Um, Again, I, I don't even like using those terms, but it, it was tough to nail down where they actually stood on the issues. Their website didn't have any policy on it, and publicly they did everything they could to avoid taking a stand on things like healthcare or on gun rights or on you know a, a whole different host of issues that people are really concerned about. And it's just my view, and I think a lot of other people's view, that if you don't nail down where you stand, nobody's going to respect you. Right, left, center, it doesn't matter. So we had an expensive loss in 2018, but it forced my opponent uh, to spend a lot of their, their piggy bank. And so they have less money this time. The Republicans are defending more seats. We're nine points from winning this district. <clears throat> That's it. It's single-digit red. And we can do it. It just takes a different type of campaign. And this is something that really only one group in politics understands. And it's grassroots candidates that we need to knock on every door. We need to be willing to talk to purple and red voters because we as working class candidates, working class people, me as a former first responder and veteran, I have more in common with a Trump supporter who works in a trade than someone who's been in politics for 30 years, 40 years, 
doesn't know what it's like to make minimum wage, doesn't know what it's like to be uninsured or underinsured, and is probably not going to fight for things like our health care or our civil liberties with anywhere near the tenacity of someone who's actually had those things attacked. To them, it just becomes more of a political bargaining chip. Oh, who donated to my campaign? Okay, I guess I can't defend that group of people, or I can't help make sure that we have good jobs here. And so we're running a good race. We're bringing a lot of folks over, and I know that we can win. Yeah, that's incredible. And I love that you have that strategy. And a lot of candidates that I talk to, they say that it really is easy to win over voters just by talking to them because a lot of people who these grassroots can campaigns are activating, they've never been contacted by a political campaign throughout their entire life. So they hear from someone who asks what issues affect them and they think, okay, well, you have my vote. I've never voted because it seems like it doesn't matter, but you're literally asking me what concerns me and you won me over that way. So, I mean, it just is a matter of talking to enough people. And also name recognition is important as well. I think if enough people know that they have an option that's not corporatist, they will respond to that. So, you know, currently at this point in time, in 2020, we're all kind of riding high because Bernie Sanders is the favorite. Uh, you know, there's a lot of grassroots candidates throughout the country. And we're kind of for the first time, I, at least I am because I'm a very cynical individual, um, you know, thinking about what's possible. So let's assume that you win. You make a Congress, Bernie Sanders is president, we've got the best possible political predicament. In that first year, in 2021, what do you think is going to be your main priorities? And, you know, there, there's a lot. I always stress that there's like a hundred different things that need to be addressed immediately. But if you had to prioritize like three, just personally, what do you think you'd focus on in Congress? Healthcare, housing, and jobs, to put it succinctly. Uh, in our district in particular, People are getting, we, we have a healthcare crisis in this country. And like I said earlier, having a system that incentivizes corporations to want us sick and to not heal us, it, it's, it's not tenable. You know, if, if we had a magic pill that made everyone free from disease, corporations would never, the pharmaceutical company, the health insurance company would never want us to have it. And so we need to make sure that people are able to receive healthcare and treatment from cradle to grave and preventative care that's going to save us money long term. So healthcare is number one. <clears throat> it's the number one uniting thing that we're all experiencing. And that's why I support single payer Medicare for all. And housing is another because across this district, homelessness is becoming uh, um, unable to get, uh, you know, even with a full-time job to be able to get an apartment, they're spending 50% of their income on their housing. It's not something that people can continue to live with. Uh, it gets very cold in Eastern Washington and people are going to freeze to death on the streets, just a few miles from where I am right now. And I think, you know, a society's values uh, really are shown by how we treat those most in need are, you know, disabled populations, marginalized communities, um, all different folks who are really just being left behind while our government spends trillions of dollars killing hundreds of thousands of people in other places, you know? So that's another one of my priorities. And then um, jobs. That's why I'm a supporter of the Green New Deal, because we need a federal jobs guarantee. We need to be able to bring jobs to people and make sure that they have a living wage. I, you know, when people talk about make America, well, <clears throat> so that Trump stole that from Reagan 
and Reagan was talking about late 50s, early 60s-ish, you know, your Eisenhower's, your JFK's, a period in American history where, for the most part, you could raise a family on a single income, even with a high school education, and where union membership was at 35%. And that's also the period in American history where the the lowest earning 90% of Americans held the highest concentration of wealth, the same time that union membership peaked. And so healthcare, housing, and jobs for the people in Eastern Washington, for our community, for our nation, and for our planet. Because that's the thing, you know, it's Congress, it's federal. We need to, we're not electing a dictator president, hopefully. Yeah. And so as long as we have co-equal branches of government, as long as that's a thing, and hopefully this election makes that happen again, then we need votes in Congress that are going to fight for decisive climate action, that are going to fight for employment that are going to fight for not just affordable housing housing but guaranteed housing as a right for healthcare as a right it only happens with congress and in 2008 2010 when president obama wanted a public option it seemed a, gr- a blue congress was the reason it didn't happen because they were corporate and a lot of folks here in eastern washington like to say flip the fifth blue i don't support that i don't because blue and red aren't going to solve our problems what's going to solve our problems is healthcare as a right as a human right housing as a human right and climate action yeah i love that you said that because that was kind of my next question because as you talk about you know your agenda and what needs to happen because it is urgent um my question is how do you respond to the inevitable marginalization from democratic leadership because you know assuming we're not able to change leadership and get barbara lee as speaker for example you know that'd be an amazing scenario but assuming it's still nancy pelosi and she doesn't want medicare for all and she has everyone else who's working with her you know on committees who are important to block that from even you know coming up like how do you fight the party and you know what would you do if you were threatened with committee assignments being stripped from you if you spoke out you know in favor of medicare for all how do you fight within the party and affect change while still holding on to power but trying to have an influence like i think this is a really difficult line that candidates on the left have to walk because you're in this unique situation like republicans will never challenge you know republican party leadership because they're you know in in lockstep but when it comes to the democratic party you have the split between centrists and uh the left and so they still have these institutional mechanisms party leadership that is that can kind of stop you so how do you fight against that like what's your plan and this is something that i genuinely don't know if there's a right answer to but i just like to kind of pick the brains of each of the candidates because i think that you all have really uh good answers that make me feel optimistic so what's your take on this you know when you get elected that seat doesn't belong to you it belongs to the people it belongs to the people who voted for you and so if elected when elected and i'm in congress and we get that pushback doesn't matter what party someone's from i'm with the people wherever that puts me on the political spectrum I'm with taking care of the folks who can't wait for incremental change because they're dying because every month they're rolling the dice with that insulin sharing. And so they deserve vocal advocates. They deserve people who are going to shout in the halls of Congress 
who are going to demand that we take action. Our planet demands it. As they they look as as folks look for a middle ground between destroying our planet, destroying our lives, allowing people to die, continuing to invest more money in forever wars. As they try to look for a middle ground between that and just taking care of people, I'm not going to sacrifice our values. I'm not going to sacrifice our morals because we deserve better. I'm not running to ho- take a seat and then only care about re-election. That it, it, it doesn't matter. The people here for too long have had someone who wasn't around at all, and we see it around the country. And if nothing else, at least I can be the voice there that shouts back and calls it out in person and helps bring support for candidates that mm-hmm. are going to help fight back. You know, Sarah Smith is our fundraising director. She was a 2018 brand new Congress candidate. She was challenging a Democrat. She was a Democrat challenge, primarying a Democrat. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Because we're here to fight for the people, not for a party. Yeah, I love and that answer. Say, go oh, ahead. I, I interrupted you. Say, say what you're going to say. I don't even remember. Okay, okay. No, the reason why I like to ask that is because I think that a lot of people, like, I'm trying to bring out that internal Machiavellian political instinct if it exists. Because, like, I love how AOC explained that, you know, when you get to Congress, there's all of these different voices that immediately get in your ear and they try to get you to conform. And you can kind of get a sense of which candidates will conform and which ones won't conform. And I think that's super important to kind of ask what their strategy would be. And, you know, you you can hear in your answer that there wasn't any sense of, well, you know, I'm going to play along with leadership, you know, because I'll get in there once I get into power, then I can affect change. But that never happens in reality. So it's important that people are committed to the fight when they get elected to Congress and they bring that organizer mentality. And I, I can see that with you. You passed that test. And I wouldn't have told you if you didn't pass the test. So congratulations. So it's just, it, you know, it's nice to see that people are getting elected, not just with the right ideas, but a correct strategy, or at least a strategy that we hope will work that, you know, you're not going to roll over and die like Democrats usually do, unfortunately. You know, it's a sad fact of reality, but there's just like, there's a lot of people who are well-intentioned that don't want to fight and part of fighting for the people is this acknowledgement explicitly, I think, that you're going to fight party leadership as well and your own party if need be. So I think that a lot of people who've watched this, if they haven't already heard about you, are already convinced. So tell us what we can do to help you get elected, because I think that if you were representing the 5th Congressional District and you kicked out a Republican, that would be just phenomenal. So what can we do to make that a reality? Sure. So... Uh, you can go to armitageforcongress.com. That's A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E-F-O-R, congress.com, or Act Blue and chip in a few dollars because we're doing this as an unbought campaign. This is possibly the only race in the country where it is, you know, a, a progressive versus a Republican, where it's someone ready to fight for the working class, a working class person ready to demand real change against a Republican, and it's in a winnable district. We can win this district again. But it only happens with your help. And if we don't bring the fight, if we don't really do everything we can, then my opponent is also Trump's Washington State fundraising chair. They're one of the most important arms of his West Coast fundraising, and we need to pull her away from that. 
How about she spend some time here with the people in Eastern Washington trying to explain cutting SNAP benefits while giving multi-trillion dollar tax cuts to the wealthy? That it only happens if you help us buy yard signs and, you know, hold more public forums. And that helps us all. That helps build a future worth fighting for. That helps build the future that we all want to see where our grandchildren can go fishing and where nobody has to die because they don't have health care because they can't afford to live. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll leave that there. Thank you so much, Chris. We are watching very closely this race. We're rooting for you. And there's what a little over 160 days until the Washington State primary. Is that correct? In fact, tell yeah, us the date. There. Tell us the date before we leave. Well, technically, it's August 4th, but we do mail in ballots. And so those get sent out a few weeks prior. Mm, OK, OK. Well, I'll I'll have links on the bottom of the screen to your website and whatnot so they can get those details. Thank you so much, Chris. Well, that's all that I've got for you all today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far, as usual, we're not going to end the show without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show not just to survive but thrive as well. Thank you all so much. By the time most of you see this, the Nevada caucus will have already been done. We'll know the results, hopefully, assuming everything goes according to plan. Um, but I'm preparing. I will uh, try to talk about that uh, as soon as we get the results on Saturday. But because it's a weekend, it's a little bit more difficult for me to cover it um but that doesn't matter because you'll already know but for our members you know that um going into this there's a lot at stake um who'll see this video early but regardless i'm just rambling at this point so let's just stop here i'll see you all next week take care everyone